Hi, this is Ryan Bodenheim, artist of The Dying and the Dead, and you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. <laughs> Yep, our doodles. It's another one. It's a fun one. It is. They don't know that yet, though. It's a great one. No, they don't. Well, I mean, they know they're all great, but I'm letting them know that. Of course they're all great. I was telling them, people at home don't know this, but Jason went to pee-pee, and I said, we are so damn good at this this point that we could have a conversation with the dude that sweeps up, if there is a dude that sweeps up comic shops, and we would still be able to make an engaging conversation not that our interview subject was anything like that but i'm just saying we're pretty damn versatile at this point just to toot our own horns i i agree wow <laughs> but i don't i don't want it to come across like we're saying our guest wasn't no riveting. So, no he was he was very much so i'm just saying yeah. we could talk to the indie guys we can talk to the big two guys we could talk to guys in the trenches like Josh Bayer, ding, and uh, we, <laughs> we always manage to pull out a, a, a an at least listenable yes. uh, adventure. White Claw? Yep. Oh, boy. <laughs> you going to put your panties on after that, your little frilly panties? <laughs> put them on. I already have them on. <laughs> I have them pulled to the side. So play oh, them. my dude. <sighs> nom, 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 nom. Hello, everybody. It's Family 11 entertainment. Yes. It's 11 o'clock comics episode 628 mm. and I'm I'm a really inspired Vince B. You are and I love it and I am David A Price. I can vouch for that and I am of course Metlar the Inhumanoid. Oh boy, no you're not. You're not Metlar. You're Jason Wood everybody together again uh, for this we have a guest this episode damn right yeah but we're not gonna well you already read it in the show notes it's phil hester and he was amazing we had a great conversation about a whole bunch of stuff span the gamut of comic industry comic process characters all of that all of which are available to you at one place where that it's Discount Comic Book Service, dcbservice.com, where you can get your books, get them fast, get them delivered right to your door for a fraction of the price. Write these down from IDW. It's not often that a non-Big 2 book actually reaches the issue 100 milestone, but what do you know? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has done just that. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, issue 100, by our buddy, who's doing the absolute finest work of his entire career. We are, of course, talking about Dave Wachter, written Mm -hmm. by Tom Waltz and somebody named Kevin Eastman. They put these schlubs on these books. I don't get it. Um, Regular price is $7.99, but you're super smart and savvy. You're bringing this thing home for half that, $3.99. From Image, it's Heart Attack, number one. Written by Sean Kittleson, with art by Eric Zavadsky and Michael Garland. It's um, another, uh, looks like another post-apocalyptic story with gene therapy and superheroics and not-so-nice um, misadventures. It's uh, three ninety nine, 
But you know the drill. You're getting it for $1.99. That's 50% off. Certainly not least, number three, from Ahoy. We talked this book up a little while ago. This is the second go-around with these characters. It's called Dragonfly and Dragonfly Man. Two worlds come together. This is a five-issue miniseries, the first of which will cost you not three ninety-nine as is printed on the cover, but a dollar ninety-nine. Don't be silly. What? Mm-mm. No, I'm saying, yeah, no, that's it's crazy. That wasn't a uh uh. That was a mm hmm. Mm hmm. Why would you? Mm-hmm. Why would? <laughs> why would you pay? <laughs> He's such an idiot. <laughs> why would you pay? Full price. Why don't you pay it all? Oh, yeah, no, full price, yeah. No, yeah, and Phil goes into some, yeah, some see, piracy it, it, talk, all, too, which is... It's all meta. Which is very, very relevant to the times in which we live. But uh, three ninety nine cover price, you are bringing it home for $1.99. DCBService.com, the absolute best on the stinking planet. I chatted with Christina yesterday. Nice. Do tell. Well... First, I wanted to say hello and see how her trip was because she took a big vacation with her sisters, which looked pretty fun. Then I wanted to see if uh, or make double, triple check that her and Cam would be at uh, New York Comic Con. They will. Nice. And then I wanted to see if they had any interest in us uh, having a cocktail or two while we're in town because the last few years, all we've really done is run into them almost randomly and say a quick hello. So, uh, And then uh, four, I had a proposal proposal for her or well kind of a quasi request slash proposal um related to our show and patreon and i can't get into it right now but the initial discussion was quite advantageous wait a minute what is this we right dap and i were not informed of this i love it you Wait. guys gave me long ago power of attorney to make this kind of stuff. So, so no, it's very true. If I, I only give carte blanche to maybe three people in my life, one of which is my wife, because she makes the money. So you two are the others. But uh, you know, and speaking of discount comic book service, I got a wonderful email, uh, wonderful and distressing at the same time, from. Um, DCBS because a book I had pre-ordered maybe two months back had doubled in price. Mm. How do you approach publishing? No, no. How do you approach publishing in such an ass backwards way that you suddenly realize that it's going to cost you twice as much to print the book? And, and it was, it was nice because um, it was worded, like um you have this on your order we understand that the price is you know pretty much doubled do you want to keep it or do you want to cancel it? i'm like uh hells no i want to i want to cancel it even though it was something I, to which i was looking forward which was well, sure it was from sir nunos it was the book about the art of the devil okay uh 400 page hardcover and it was originally solicited at like less than 20 bucks for a 400 and some page hardcover i'm like sure but the right. price changed to 44 something wow. and it would cost me an extra maybe you know 13 bucks and i'm like no i don't want it on principle if right. you're not going to yeah. do your homework and you know i don't care you're probably printing overseas anyway if you're not going to do your homework and spec it out then i'm not going to 
cover your mistake. So I had another guy from uh, Sullivan Sluggers at another company. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> nice. Shooter McCray. Speaking of shots, <laughs> what are you drinking? Um, I'm drinking some Sam again. Sam regular, like Sam Lager? Just regular Sam Adams Boston Lager. I love it. Got it. Yep. The original craft beer. It's still the best tasting. But uh, anyway. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, we yeah. already heard Poppin' Tops. Yeah, I'm drinking some, because I, cause I got it like that, y'all. Some of you don't. I'm drinking White Claw, <laughs> Ruby Grapefruit Hard Seltzer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I should be talking about man eaters. Because he, uh, he has to get a pap smear tomorrow, so he doesn't want to go in drunk. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, you just turned off like a thousand female listeners. Sorry. Sexist bitch. I'm sorry. But you can apologize to Sarah when you see her in two weeks. <sighs> anyway, Dap, what are you drinking? I, um, well, I was going to, um, have some seltzer tonight to, to, to make up for my, to catch up to you guys from our bonus Sunday night episode. Um, and because I am probably going to be drinking many drinks tomorrow, the minion wants to um, take me off my birthday. You'll never guess where he's taking me, Jason. I I couldn't imagine. We're going uh, to the plant man. So, uh, oh my goodness! I was going to say Olive Man's Garden. Garden. Oh God, no! Oh, but I see you. Quiet there. man! Wow, that is shocking. no. I am not going to no stinking Olive Garden. I can wobble home. It's perfect. I don't no. care. Um, you got a tab at the Olive Garden. <laughs> put it put it on my tab, good man. <laughs> oh, that nasty shit. Um, I am. Um, this is a shout out to Caleb because he sent this to me once many many moons ago. Uh, this is uh, Avalon Cabernet Sauvignon, Lodi, California, from 2017. Okay, nice, nice. Before we we before we uh, introduce Phil and talk about the other comics. Uh, New York Comic Con. Uh, as we are recording, we will have we will be we will be we are two weeks away from being done our first day of New York Comic Con. Wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. we will be back at my crib or close to it probably two weeks from now. Just uh, re- rehashing the uh, glory of the first day. But um, a great many of you are going to be at New York Comic Con. Roughly one hundred fifty thousand of you. So. Next, uh, the Friday of New York Comic Con, October 4th, we will be having a little get-together somewhere. Still trying to figure out the where, but uh, that's not really as important as you making the commitment to be there. It'll be somewhere nearby the Javits, so um, so put it on your calendars now. We'd love to see you. We want to have people roll in. You don't got to roll in for the whole night. You can roll in for a drink or two, say hello, then go about your business. You know, if you're a big muckety-muck and you need to go to some kind of industry party or you do you. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna plant the flag somewhere. We're gonna set up shop. Hopefully, get a nice crew and just hang out and do our thing. So Friday, October fourth, will be the night. So if y'all want to socialize with us outside of the con floor, that is your opportunity, and we would love to see you. Speaking of the convention, oh, Uh-oh. we really need to make a uh, concerted effort to bumpers. Bumpers, content, videos, photos, yeah. because we did not do squat at C2E2, even though it was a shitstorm. Um, we, we really didn't provide. We, we put some photos up, but it wasn't really a lot. 
So I think for New York, which is our home show, yeah. we're yeah, kind of right. more organized for New York. We don't because we we it, are. We, yeah. Chicago was because we walked to the con each day, whereas for New York, we're in the car and and we can always you know fire up the recording device and 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 chat for a bit. It's where we are more organized at New York. We we kind of have a game plan. We know what aisles we need to hit, who's at each aisle, where we can chat for a few minutes. Chicago C two E two as 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 great as a show it was for everybody it it was we were not as um as organized as we tend to like to be for a convention that's poop <laughs> but, but uh, right either way you're right vince good good on you we will we, we will we will crush it we will be a multimedia extravaganza at new york comic con as we always say i want bumpers from people who are going to be hanging with us friday night um, we need a lot of bumpers because uh, I've been noticing that I tend to reuse some um, favorites. And even if we get well, – one of the excuses we use is when we see somebody, ah, we got him. But we should get another one then. And, and, so and you definitely get another one, especially now that we're a little savvier to it versus a few years ago when we just asked for bumpers. We can get them to say, hey, you got this book coming out. Why don't you pip it? Right, right. So good old so, content. But as we always say, asked, we are going to be Suter and New York City is going to be the anvil. We're going to hit it <laughs> and, and hit it hard. Doom. Doom. Yeah, Doom. No, no doubt. So there you go. No diggity, no doubt. Um, well, you work it. Please, yeah, please do come on through on that Friday night, though, because right, we, we, didn't really, we didn't really publicize our get-together last, last year as much as we should have. And uh, then we had... You know, we didn't have as many folks as we expected, and then we had a lot of folks saying, "Oh, I didn't know what was going on. I would love to have seen y'all." So, so no excuses this year. We, we will we will have a spot, and we're expecting to see you. Everybody's welcome. Oh hell yeah, everybody, even that guy back there. Yep. So, what you are about to hear is an amazingly engaging conversation with a seasoned pro, a veteran. So great, a veteran of the comic wars. Uh, we we mentioned his name. We'll do it again, Mr. Phil Hester. It's unbelievably good. We had a great time. You will too. Stick around after the dust settles because we're going to do a little bit of catch up and then we out of here. So enjoy this. Be back in two and two. Our guest tonight, uh, he's written The Darkness and uh, he's penciled a couple of issues. He's uh, written Black Terror, The Atheist, Green Hornet. The Coffin, Wonder Woman, Thunder Agents, Gen 13, Deep Sleeper, Stronghold, and he's the co-creator of Fire Breather and of The Anchor. He's drawn Swamp Thing and The Wretch and Green Arrow, where he co-created Mia Dearden and Onomatopoeia. Uh, he's drawn uh, The Teen Titans, Nightwing, Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters, Batman Beyond, Ultimate Marvel Team-Up, uh, Shipwreck, wow. uh, and he's along with... Andy Parks, the s- reason why I bought Irredeemable Ant-Man, where he co-created Eric O'Grady. Uh, he's contributed to anthologies like Negative Burn, 24-7, Grendel, Red, White, and Black. Um, the 9-11 uh, anthology published in part by DC, the world's finest comic book writers and artists tell stories to remember, as well as the 9-11 Emergency Relief Anthology from Alternative Comics. The Man has been published by... DC and Caliber and Oni Press and Marvel, IDW, Image Comics, Aftershock, Boom, and Ahoy. And tonight he is with us. It is Mr. Phil Hester. Hey, everybody. 
You know, that makes it sound that makes it sounds like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) He covered pretty much everything, didn't he? Yeah. Close. He's a good man. Close, yeah, no, there's 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 a lot more and I didn't want to just I mean, the whole episode could just be running down your resume and people can absolutely uh, we need to update your Wikipedia page where people can go to Comic Book DB and other spots to uh, to see everything yeah. that uh, yeah. that you've worked on. But you could just run down every title, and I could apologize for each one individually. <laughs> <laughs> Dap, did so, you say Uncle Slam? I I did not say uh, Uncle Slam. And Uncle Slam. And Uncle Slam. Yes. Now now you guys are dating. Now you guys are the old ones. Yeah. Well, we are. We're very oh, yes. old. Yes. Yep. But we don't care. Because we love this medium and we love your work, and that's why we're here. We want to talk to you about it. I'm I'm all for it. Yay! Awesome. Yeah, it's ridiculously ridiculously overdue. I, yeah, it's like I'm, I wonder did I like uh, did I do something to these guys? And you're on the blacklist, man. You just you, <laughs> we, we we can't we can't even tell you how you got out of it, but you did finally get off of it. Yeah, it was like a double secret probation. Yeah, and it, yeah. twelve year probation. Yeah. <laughs> well, at one time, Jason used to be a Republican. So when <laughs> when you were doing Green Arrow, it's like I can't talk oh, about. Yeah, yeah you it's know, true. Yeah, this liberal. I think I've more than made up for those past sins. <laughs> you have. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm about as outspoken politically yeah. as as, as Ali. Yeah, yeah, as Ali himself. That's yeah, Ali. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. So uh, the big news, the surprise news, not really a surprise if you get the previews catalog, is that in this month you can pre-order Mr. Hester's upcoming book with Jeff Lemire. It's called Family Tree, number one. And I I want all the dirt on this. Where did it come from? How did it originate? What was the the, the beef? It came came from uh, Jeff's, like, fertile imagination. I mean... He is like a dynamo. Like uh, he produces work at a, a like an alarming rate. It's ridiculous, right? <laughs> like even just just like the Black Hammer universe is enough output for any one creator, and that's like a side hustle for him. <laughs> you know, he's out he's out here creating, you know, books at at a pace I don't think I've seen in modern comics ever. Um, but it it came from uh, Jeff and I wanting to do something together for a while, and you know we've been talking for like oh gosh I don't know Family Tree's been in the process of being born for probably four years um, just from us talking back and forth about doing something, and we had a couple like near misses on big two projects together, and. Um, Jeff just finally hit a story that he felt like, you know, this is a, a a thing that I think you'll work on and we can take the image and it'll be slam dunk. So let's, let's put it together. And, um, after a few false starts, because both our schedules are kind of crazy. Um, we finally came available both at the same time and, and started working on it. Well, it's a striking cover. I mean, you're going to be able to see this, from anywhere in the comic shop. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. I mean, uh, almost everybody in comics can draw better than I can. So it's my, <laughs> it's my goal to like, False. False right <laughs> at, at least create something that uh, looks striking and arresting. And, and I think Jeff was like, uh, uh, I mean, he was, we've been 
mutual admirers for a while, but I think Shipwreck kind of pushed him over the edge where he's like, we finally need to get together and do something. Yeah, I and I don't want to interrupt you. The, uh, the, I was reading the, um, the collective version of Shipwreck, um, and the introduction by Jeff is is extremely flattering. And, oh, and he did the introduction uh, in the trade on on the trade, yeah. Because okay. I also was, was sent um, John um, John O'Neill sent me the issues, and I had ordered um, on one of AfterShock's Christmas sales. I ordered a bunch of trades so we could send them to the patrons, and and I decided to. And so I'm finally reading it, and I figured, well, it's on the bookshelf. I grabbed the tra- and and the first thing I see is the intro by by Jeff, and it's and he still ha- I don't know if he still hasn't. But according to the intro, he um, he hasn't read the last issue because he doesn't want the uh, the story of, of shipwreck to end. But no, it's it's right. a fantastic. He's and he's not wrong. He's not wrong about anything he said about I mean about Warren, but especially about you. Yeah, I don't. Um, I have a hard. Uh, I'm from the Midwest, so I have a hard time uh, taking compliments. And like, I started reading that and I couldn't finish it. <laughs> I started reading that intro and I was like, this is too nice. I can't, uh, you know, like I'm, it would be immodest for me to finish reading this intro. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the same thing happened to me when I got Mark Miller to write the, the opener, um, the forward for mythic, the book I did an image with, um, uh, like what three years ago now with John McCray. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark wrote a really nice intro, and as soon as he started praising me, I was like, I'm out. I can't look at this anymore. <laughs> it's difficult to I'll hear take... others praise your work, isn't it? It is for me. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, learned, I, I've learned to it's... come to terms with it. When does it happen? <laughs> All Sometimes. the time. It happened today. Oh, really? Man, you crunched those numbers like a boss. Thank no, you. I mean our collective talents. Oh, not... Okay. I thought you meant your real job. No. no. But, I mean, I'm just, I can't get past this cover. I know it's, the lines are so delicate. And that's one thing that when I think Phil Hester, I don't always think delicate. Right. And yet I there it that, is. It has a lot to do with my anchor on the project, Eric Gapster. Um, uh, my usual anchor is Andy Park, so you, yes. you know. Yes, it is. And we both kind of reinforce our strengths. Like, we're both about big, bold moves. And Eric's, Eric comes from the comic strip world, not the comic book world, although he loves comic books and he, you know, he's a capable, you know, a talented comic book illustrator in his own right. He comes from the comic strip world and his own work in that strip world is very sensitive and delicate. And so he can sort of find those corners in my work that I don't necessarily um, accentuate on my own. And kind of bring him to the fore. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, we we developed this thing. I don't know. If I'm maybe I'm. This is too deep a dive. But uh, when Andy and I were doing Ant Man together, um, we started doing this thing where, like, we always had like large black areas in our work. But on Ant Man, we started doing this thing where we would block in those big those big black areas on the page or the panel. But then we go back into them and draw with white like inside of those black areas, right? contours and things. And Andy did that digitally, but uh, I wanted to resurrect that look for shipwreck and also family tree. And Eric is so old school. Like he wanted to do those by hand. And so like 
all those little white lights, white lines you see on the cover number one are him actually physically like with a number one brush going in and painting white lines over black. Oh, so that's, that's great. Yeah. You know, and you know what? Work. I think that's kind of the way it should be done. Yeah. That, that, that's the organic way. It, it, in, in this digital age, you don't always get to see that somebody on procreates just kind of whizzing, you know, with a little stylus. And I, I just love to see it physically, physical media. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, and you guys, well, people that know me on, you know, for my online presence know that I'm a big original art collector too. Yes. And I really feel like there's, I like having a product at the end. You know, I like having a piece of art at the end of the process. And, Music um, to my ears. Yeah. You know. It makes it yeah. real, you know? Eric feels the same way, and that's, you know, that's where that process was sort of born. Well, I don't know how deep we should go into the the plot of this first issue. Suffice to say that it is a post-apocalyptic tale. And yeah. I, I don't know what it, what's going on, because this week, that's all I've been reading is post-apocalyptic tales. It could have been yeah. a coincidence, but this one was, this There's one so hit. comics being escapism. Uh, yeah. But it, it hit right in the sweet spot. Yeah, we thought there was like a like apocalyptic stories with tree themes were were underrepresented at Image. So <laughs> we, we do it severely. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, it uh, I think that stuff the the nuts and bolts of this of the apocalyptic and kind of body horror stuff is is almost secondary to uh, the story that Jeff's writing, which is you know, this kind of family drama and it's, I I think that's true of like the majority of Jeff's work, like, like on animal man or Royal city. Um, there, there can be these superheroic or horror elements, supernatural elements dropped in, but in the end it's, you know, it's about families trying to get along. Did Jeff um, give you any insight into what was significant about the day he picked for the the end of the no. world? No. It just seems kind of semi-arbitrary, March 14th, 1997. Like, I was just wondering if it was a significant date for something in his oh, life or... Listen, <laughs> it could be. I, I only have up to issue five, so I don't know what happens after issue five. And, and <laughs> maybe he's setting me up for a nice... Uh, a nice zinger later but it i think like one of his real strengths as a writer is um the last page of every issue he writes is always a real stinger right uh, i think he's up there with brian k vaughn for being able to do that i'd agree with uh, that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like, he has a good way of like holding his cards close to the chest until that last page and on the last page something sort of devastating either emotionally or visually is always revealed so it's a lot of fun to draw the book and you mentioned um lemire's how how prolific he is i mean it's a significant achievement but on top of it the books are all good i mean i I could i could see you you know a guy writing writing 10 books and like three of them are really good and then you get four eh, and the last two are just terrible all jeff's books are good oh you see it happen all the time yeah. It's it's sort of the trajectory of of the hot writer is, you know, you have a couple of indie things that really blow up and people love you, and then Marvel and DC come to town and they want you to write everything, and yes. you get out over your skis and 
Um, you start overextending yourself. Right. And, um, the quality doesn't match your earlier work. Um, and that's down to one, Jeff is super talented, but also Jeff knows when to pull back. Um, you know, he, he used to write a ton of stuff for Marvel and he's not so much anymore. And, um, his DC stuff is pretty, I mean, he, you know, he's a shot caller now, so, he, you know, he chooses what he wants to work on mm. and, um, yeah. he doesn't take like, you know, they roll up on him on a series that he doesn't believe in. He doesn't do it. So, um, I think that's helped him keep his quality level high. But enough about Jeff. Let's praise you a little bit. <laughs> because okay. I, as I was going through this thing, I almost, I found myself making the same facial expressions as the characters. Um, mm -hmm. Loretta is very expressive, uh, especially yeah. with, with her eyes. But the dude that shows up in the grocery store with the box of cereal and he, yeah. I, I made that face when when i was reading like I, it, it's almost contagious and that's the one I, I love the facial expressions in this book i i'm i'm making all of them as i draw i figured so as much know. yeah yeah it's you can't help it I, I think most artists do like when they're drawing a like somebody scowling or shouting or whatever they're they're probably doing it silently at their drawing table right um but yeah it's the acting is really important for this book um because there are sort of thunderclaps or explosions of action, but um, there are long rests between those thunderclaps, and that's when the acting has to sort of carry the story. And um, uh, it's fun to get really get in there. And, and Jeff's dialogue is so evocative. Um, the cues as to you know what kind of expressions to give people are right there. So it's it's all right in the script, and it's just my job to sort of bring it to life. And as always, uh, major props for your use of negative space. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's sort of, I, I knew Jeff was l really liked what we did with shipwreck again. And, um, for me up to that point, that was the most fun I had ever had drawing a comic was drawing shipwreck. Um, really? and, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's sort of the closest. I mean, that's like, saying um, something because you've been drawing comics yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I think that's the closest to my natural style as I've had out. Um, you know, I draw shinier, bouncier stuff for superheroes, and I've drawn um, a little bit edgier, darker, messier stuff for, like, horror books or artsy mm -hmm. books. And Shipwreck sort of lands in that perfect synthesis of those two things, and it's been, it was very rewarding for me, and I really feel like Family Tree is, like, just a, like a continuing evolution of that style. Yeah. Oh, so did knowing, I mean, I kind of like how people treat burn and Austin, uh, <laughs> or, or Miller and, and chance it, it's, it's very hard for me to not see Andy's name after okay. yours. And, and so when you would, uh, shipwreck first, but now with family tree have, Okay, you just said that this is kind of a different style than what you're used to doing. So how how um how much different are you knowing that Eric is inking you and not Andy? Is did that in any way make you want to change your style up a bit, or are you still just treating? Oh well, I'm um, Andy's a little more rooted in classical inking technique than 
Eric is like Eric, Eric is willing to do a deadline. Um, I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about it, but a deadline is a line where you don't vary line weights. Um, and okay. Andy is so old school that he'll always vary a line weight. You know, it'll start thin and get yes. thin. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's classic Dick Giordano, Tom Palmer, Klaus Jansen inking. Um, and I love it. And, you know, Andy and I still work together like that all the time. We just did a Martian Manhunter story for DC that he inked. Um, so we're still together. <laughs> oh. We're still Good. working together. <laughs> um there's just certain books that he can't commit to um, because I don't know if uh, if you guys spoken with him in the last, I don't know, four or five years, but like a while ago he made a conscious effort to like ink less and write more. Yes. I remember and, that. Yeah. And sort of like, it wasn't like a retirement from inking, but it was like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take some time off and write a novel, try to get more inking work done. I mean, more writing work done. And I was like, oh, I need an anchor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. I'm not going to ink this crap. And so I, uh, luckily, Eric, um, who I met when he was a kid, um, has a similar aesthetic to mine and actually lives nearby. So um, he made a natural choice for me to, to start using him. But, um, you know, both guys are capable of, of doing either style both guys get ink that it's just that the book called for a different look mm-hmm. and like on on family tree i'm not even using a straight edge like i'm trying to hand draw everything i'm trying to get a little bit more of that um the thing i really about admire about jeff lemire's books that he does solo is that he's just like he just draws it like he doesn't get hung up on bs <laughs> like yeah no he just draws true. it and I'm always like, I'm always fretting about. Oh man, is this really how a car, a car fender goes? I better re- I better reference this. And part of me is like, no, just draw it, because people are, what people are paying for is admission to your imagination. Right. They're paying for admission to like your inner visual world, and as long as it gets close enough to a verisimilitude of the outside world that people buy it and move on. Like they don't linger on it. They see it. They know what it is. They move on. Um, it works. And, uh, I, I try to sort of adopt a little bit more of that aesthetic from, from Jeff solo work. By the way, kudos to you for using the best word that's ever been used on this show. You know, Verisimilitude. Like that is fantastic. <laughs> I said that last episode. <laughs> no, you didn't. That literally came out of my mouth last episode. Are you serious? I do not remember that. Uh, testament <laughs> to the fact that you do not pay attention to me, my friend. Oh, oh whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but anyway, on the subject of straight lines, it's interesting that you should yes. bring that up, um, uh, or straight edge, because uh, as a fan of the Transformers, I, I devour the IDW <laughs> books. And I'm like, man, uh-huh. these are great. You know, this Guido Guidi's a kicking artist. But I would love to see somebody approach that um, franchise and throw the straight edge away. And in comes Tom Scholey. And, oh, and, yeah. he, and he, does, he did it the way I always wanted to see Transformers. A, a rough, organic, just um, a, 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 what's the word? Unrestrained approach to things that are very geometric. And whenever um, I teach illustration, 
I take the straight edges away from the kids. You have triangles, rulers. I just take them. You're not using these anymore because yeah. I, I'd love to see that organic line. It's just a beautiful thing. And and they're, you can be um, hobbled by a straight edge. You rely on yes. it a little bit too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you can, it, your drawings can get killed. And um, I I just thought I'd, you know, try to keep family tree, you know, all pun puns aside, try to keep family tree more organic. It yeah. looks great. It looks I think, wonderful. Yeah, succeeded. Absolutely. I mean, even even any page that, that has um, two panels and, and one of them is just... And and what I love is, I, and I just noticed that there's there's one page where there's a reveal. I just noticed her shadow, and that that blows me away because it's just it 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 makes perfect sense. But it it's even when you don't pack the page full edge to edge with with line work, you still manage to to knock someone out. It's just it it looks it is. It's I mean I'm and I have. You know, I I have the Green Arrow run, and 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 I love that, and so much so that I that I, I have a page that you and Andy both sign, and I refuse to cut it, and it's not going to fit in eleven by seventeen <laughs> frame. Um, but I, I so I've I've seen your your work over the years, and I, I close my eyes and I, I picture your style, and this 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 is you. This is obviously you. I see it, yeah. but yeah, it, it's. I, I don't want to say it's softer, but I guess that makes sense since you're since you're trying to do just more freehand. It's less slick. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not. It's not as slick. And Andy is a slicker inker, also. Um, Andy knows how to polish me up and and make me do a you know palatable to a superhero audience. Mm-hmm. Um, um, barely <laughs> palatable to a superior audience, but I think a book on family tree, I can just let it all hang out and just be myself because, uh, the people that are coming for a Jeff Lemire book at image that are horror fan and their style. And I can just be myself. And, um, that's hopefully what people are going to get. All right. Well, it even makes more sense when you the the theme of the book is a post apocalyptic world overgrown by yeah. let's let's just say vegetation to take a more earthy approach right and not constrain yeah. yourself with rigid uh parameters i just think it's right. it, it's smart you're you're a smart man well wow. now when um not <laughs> uh, the um knowing that you're an artist and a writer and so is jeff when it comes to something like so, so you're five issues in. Um, how much? What's 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 the process like? What's what's the give and take? Does how how strict is? Because then I'm going to ask you to compare them to Warren Ellis. But how strict is is Jeff's scripts? It, 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 or does he uh, give you a lot it, of room? You would be. Uh, I think you'll be surprised that they're both uh, similarly similarly similar. They're both very they're alike. They're both alike. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. Uh, they're both similar in the fact that they are very terse with their scripts, um, which is sort of a hallmark of a writer that expects the artist to think about things and bring their own perspective to um, the panel they're going to draw. Mm-hmm. So uh, neither one of those guys gives camera angles. Um uh, Warren talks a little bit more about how he wants pages laid out. Um, he, you know, that he prefers that Warren Ellis widescreen, you know, stacked widescreen panels. Um, right. 
but Jeff doesn't place any sort of parameters like that. But they're both equally economical in terms of their panel descriptions. Um, I, I think in Jeff's case, he knows that the dialogue is going to carry the day. Like, I'm going to figure out how, what's important about this panel from the dialogue. And, um, and both guys sort of, I think, uh, hopefully respect my skills as a storyteller to just sort of um, do my thing. And if I feel like I need to change something, um, I usually change it with a justification so they know why I did it. Um, and I think every time I did it, I, the only time I, it didn't fly in shipwreck was once. I think I, I suggested something once and, and tried it, and it it went a, it went counter to what Warren wanted. So we, you know, went back and did it his way, and that hasn't happened yet on Family Tree. So, um, and I think that's just part of Jeff. Like, you know, he he sought me out. He wanted to work with me on this thing, and I, it's probably because he liked the way I told told stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in cinematic terms, he's the screenwriter. You're actually the director of this production. Yeah, yeah. You have to be the director and the and the actors and the set designer and the <laughs> cinematographer. Yeah. You know, you have to wear a lot of hats. And um and Jeff, you know, I mean what's surprising to me is that sometimes I'll I'm learning a lot from Family Tree, I know that, because sometimes I'll be drawing along and I'll just do a couple pages in a row that I thought, these are throwaway pages. Why are we doing this? You know, like, I, I don't get this. Like, this page, we blew a whole page on her, like, opening a car door and noticing a leaf falling. You know, we blew that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're doing. And then I realized that it was, like, to set up the beats for the third page, which, like, the third page is devastating. <laughs> you know? Be, um, but that stuff is so ingrained in Jeff's storytelling sensibilities mm-hmm. um, that he just writes that way. He writes at a pace that, like, I would never write at. Like, I'm so used to writing at sort of a really economical, like, page, you know, pages and panels are so precious that I have to cram a lot of stuff in there. And Jeff's like, uh, because of the success he's had, he knows, oh, I'm going to write this thing for 12 issues or eight issues or 30 issues, whatever. I'm going to take my time and tell it the way I want to tell it. And um, the way he paces an issue, I've learned a lot from, too. So I'm trying to, this is like. Not only is this a fun project to work on, but it's also like a college course. Even though Jeff's younger than I am, I'm learning a ton from him about how to structure comic books. Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the things I was curious about because, you know, we've talked a lot about Jeff and how prolific he is. But, I mean, you're you're certainly prolific, too, and and have done a ton of writing and drawing. So, I mean, it's not like this is um, a greenfield thing for you. So, So, as a writer... Um, you know, has your process as a writer changed over the years um, in terms of how you work with, uh, with, with other illustrators and, and, and do you like, let yeah, the, I'm do you let your relationship with their illustrator change? Like, you know, does to say the way you, you worked with Ryan Kelly differ than the way you've worked with mm-hmm. other artists? Oh yeah, definitely. Cause you sort of know what people are good at and what they're not good at. Mm-hmm. And uh, you sort of, you try to play to their strengths and you, um, in terms of like, um, that's the hardest thing for me that I have to pull back on because I'm an artist also when I'm writing a script, I see the way I want it to go. And I back off a little bit from kind of bullying the artist in my panel description and saying, you know, this should be a low angle and uh, you know, uh Birdman should be a panel left and you know, 
whatever. You know, I have to back off that a little bit and let the artists assert themselves. Um, otherwise, they'll feel smothered. Uh, and that's where another thing I'm taking up with Jeff is that, you know, sometimes you just have to let it, let the chips fall and adapt instead of writing. <laughs> like, to, before this, my ideal comic book writing experience was sort of like Harvey, uh, Har- the way Harvey Kurtzman wrote the war books for EC back in the day. Like, he would take, <laughs> you know, he would he would write the story and he'd take like a, a, a sheet of type he'd rough out the eight pages on that one sheet of type and like hand that off to the artist and say here's your here's your layouts yeah to me that sound that was sounded so much fun i mean i own i own one of those like because i just like wanted to study it and to understand a writer that was like the ideal thing like oh i can write a book and lay it out but not have to bother with drawing it that's great (laughs) you know and that uh so just getting me to loosen up a little bit off on that but to me, that was a lot of fun. Well, when you have your skill as a visual stylist to relinquish control is, I would think, very hard. Because It is, it is tough. Yeah. yeah. As stuff comes in and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, this is pretty good, but I kind of would have done this a different way. But then again, you can't lean on the guys because then they're going to be like, screw working with Phil. Yeah, no, I've <laughs> He's never. He's too controlling. Made- I've never made anyone redraw anything because I've I've been on the other end of that equation. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not I'm never going to do that. But um, it did it did help me just over the years, even before this book with Jeff, learn to back off that. Like the very first like big thing I ever wrote was the coffin at Oni, like mm-hmm. in 2000. Yeah. And I I really did very tight layouts and balloon placements, everything, um, for that book, and. Um, it took me and I thought, this is just how I'm going to work. This is the way I, I'm going to write from now on. And it took me, oh gosh, what was it? Like the second fire breather series. Like I was doing that for Andy Kuhn and I'm like, what am I doing? Andy knows how to tell a story. Andy, (laughs) you know, Uh, and Andy was like, yeah, in fact, I'd rather we work Marvel style. So, and so it helped me loosen up and, and sort of be able to find joy in, all these different methods that you could approach writing a comic book. So um, now I can do, I can do Marvel style. I can do thumbnail style. I can do full script. All those things are fun to me now. That's great. Yeah. Are we going to get our hearts broken on this book? Yes. Oh boy. I would imagine, right? <laughs> that is, there's the end of the world that, that we're dealing with. So. Well, I don't worry about that. Well, I'm just it's... concerned about the characters we've been introduced to. It's sort of well, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing, Walmart, right? So right. I assume it'll, I mean, partially be driven by how sales are. But if 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 it is a fingers crossed a big hit, um, you know there there are there are twenty issue ongoings and there are hundred issue ongoings. So right. have you guys gotten? Have you brainstormed enough to have a concept of? Is this one of those things where you know how it begins, you know how it ends, but how long it takes to get there will depend. Yeah, that's all up to Jeff, and it's all up to whether his TV show is a big hit. So, <laughs> like, if he's if he's on the set uh, for most of 2020, uh, it's going to be a short series. <laughs> so, right. uh, it's it's largely a matter of like Jeff's availability. So if he if he's inspired and feels like he wants to keep writing it, I'll keep drawing it. Um, we'll go as long as he wants to go. Um, but but I um, like there's a choke up moment in the second issue, you know. 
and you've only known these characters for like 30 pages and there's already a moment when you're just like damn um you know wiping the tears away because that's jeff's specialty you know sort of just getting to the emotional core of a story definitely like really efficiently and um kind of almost deceptively so that you're kind of trucking along in the st- I'm here. Oh, okay. Uh, I lost you, I lost you for a second. Yeah, you um your side keeps dropping out. Um Okay, I'm in I'm in the sticks, that's probably it. It's true. That's where you're just in the, in your description for Skype it says the sticks for your, your address. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't lying. Yeah. Yeah. But um but, the uh I I just I'm looking at these pages and uh, I have to wonder, what's the uh, how many do you produce a day? Oh well, boy, I'm doing other things too. So, like, I try to do one a day. Okay, but then I'm also drawing, you know, like little side gigs, like this Martian Manhunter gig, or, um, you know, I'm writing stuff for um, DC, and then I'm. Uh, I just helped along with their new middle grade readers line. Oh, nice. Um, They have a Robin graphic novel coming out. And I think part of the goal of that line was to bring in talent from outside of comics and, um, which is cool. And it brings in a whole new sort of demographic of reader. But the problem with that is those, uh, a lot of that talent isn't familiar with how to make a comic book. Right, Right. Right. Okay. So they sort of hired me to come in and lay out, lay out books. So I laid out the Robin book and, and handed that off to the, the artist to do finished art based on my layouts. So that was a lot of fun for me too. Cause that was just like a storytelling, you know, uh, pure storytelling. Like mm-hmm. I just sat down and did thumbnails all day. So That's I've always got cool. little, I've always got these little side gigs going too, and, um, try to keep my hand in at a bunch of different places because, yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because I think you've had a very long, consistent career, um, both as a writer and an artist. But but you kind of just hinted at it. It's I, I've I've I'd love to hear you sort of speak on what it's like to be, um, you know, essentially a freelance artist for a few decades. Like, like, wh- what is yeah. what is that like? I mean, just in terms of mechanistically. Um, you know, keeping lots of balls in the air and like how, how often are you looking for new gigs and just trying to make sure they all slot in? Cause I mean, I, I would imagine it's gotta be stressful at times, but, but you yeah. know, you've probably been around long enough that you, you know, knock on wood, usually your plate is, is more, is, it's more a case of just trying to figure out what to say no to than to like what you yeah. have to say yes to. But I, but I'm, I, I am fascinated by that. Cause I think we as, as, as consumers of this, you know, we, we often just think of, of creators is either, Oh, they're, you know, they're, ex- they're exclusive to this or, or they write it big too, or they do their indie stuff. But we don't really think about the, me- the mechanics of what it's actually like to make your living this way, where you're, you are trying to fill your plate and your bank account with lots of different gigs that have different time frames and, and different probabilities of success and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, uh, I always tell people that wonder what, you know, people with regular jobs that wonder what it's like to, to live freelance for 30 years. Um, what it's like. And I was like, well, it's wonderful. Like I never get bored. I've, you know, I've got a new job every year. Sure. Um, and it's all, and they're all dream jobs are all fun. But the downside of that is I don't know what I'm doing six months from now. 
Um, but, but that's sort of a blessing because guess what? Neither do you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting perspective, right? <laughs> Nobody like, you don't know what's going to happen to your business. You don't know what's going to happen to your industry. Um, and neither do I, I just know it. So I'm always, I'm always like trying to stay nimble and ready to adjust to whatever that takes me. Um, in, in the 30 plus years I've been doing comics, I, I think I spent maybe nine months out of comics in the right in the middle. And that was when I was doing a lot of animation storyboard stuff. Sure. Um, and just that little, that little window out of comics was like heartbreaking to me, even though I was working on the coolest shows. Like I was working on the Batman show. I was working on the Superman show. Um, men in black, big guy and rusty. Like I was working on really cool shows, but even that, even being that close to almost as cool as comics wasn't enough for me. And I was sort of like, I got to get back to comics. But, um, so it sort of made me adopt this philosophy of never, ever having all my eggs in one basket, right? Um, never having all my income from writing or from drawing, never being just at one company or one publisher, um, always being, uh, nimble enough to like, you know, no, go where the work is. And sometimes when I talk to like younger artists or, or classes or, um, do school presentations, I know, like, I know how rare being a comic book artist is. It's like going to career day and talking to kids about how they can be in the NBA someday. <laughs> it's really, it's really rare. Um, so what I do talk to them about is like, look, if you are a creative person, you have to learn to trust your creativity, whether you become a doctor or an accountant or a copywriter or, you know, whatever, um, or a dancer or a musician. Um, the thing that you can bank on is your creativity and your, and your thinking great mm-hmm. creatively. And I know that that's like, if comics disappeared for me tomorrow, I'd start writing my novel, you know, or I'd start storyboarding for film. You know, I'd start, you know, using my creativity in a different way. Sure. And comics, the way I handle my comics career is sort of like a focusing of that philosophy, you know, and just always ready to jump over to the next, um, the next gig as it becomes available. If time allows. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of the thing is like, you have to really, learn how to manage your time mm-hmm. um, or you can run into a lot of trouble. <laughs> like not only in terms of like delivering your work when you should, but like in terms of how, your lifestyle and your health, you know, you can, right. really, you can really screw things up by overworking yourself. Um, in fact, I did <laughs> very badly. Oh, just, is that right? Yeah. Just a few years ago. And I really had to straighten up and fly right. And Meaning um, like stress, like just stress or yeah, stress and caffeine and mm. eating like a. Uh, can we swear on this? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Shit, yeah. Like, yeah. I I was like eating like an asshole and just staying like sleeping four hours a night, and that's, that's I sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I, what's wrong with all this? <laughs> <laughs> and I, as I approached fifty. That led to um, an idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Um, that was like that's heart failure. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like something to do with your heart, but I okay. Yeah, it's heart failure, mm-hmm. and um, they thought, well, this guy's big. He's got to be. He's got to have like clogged arteries or something. 
And they went in and scoped me and they're like, your arteries are huge and clean. We don't know what's wrong with you, but we do know that you can't be fat anymore. Mm. And you have to stop eating salt and you have to stop eating sugar and you have to stop taking caffeine today. Oh, and I had to quit all those things on, on one day in 2015. And, yeah. um, I mean, I don't know if, yeah, if people that are listening, maybe that haven't met you or don't you, I mean, you were, as you, as you said, you were, you know, you're a bigger guy yeah. and now you're the antithesis of that. So I, but I, yeah, uh, I've been a lot of, I've been every way there is. <laughs> so say we all, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So I, I always joke that like if a group of dudes stay friends long enough, you will take turns being the fat guy. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We've all we've all had our moments on both sides of it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, hundred percent. So, I, but I had to stop, and I was, you know, I was going to die, and like before I was fifty, just from stress and overwork, and um, so that situation's under control now. But, um, yeah, I mean, you've clearly taken hold of your your uh, your nutrition and like your weight, but but has that had the re- requisite uh flow through where you you are living a healthier life like do you feel less stressed and you feel more you know oh yeah yeah well part of that is i take metropolol which controls your heart rate so like i cannot get excited (laughs) no i mean i can get excited but i can't get like um i'll never get that heart racing panic attack feeling i can't i physically can't get it does that work the other way around too though does that limit your ability to get like super excited about things no, no, it it keeps me from getting like, I can exercise and get my heart rate up around a hundred, but my resting heart rate used to be a hundred. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, I had, so I don't have that sort of impen- sense of impending doom all the time sure. that I had. And so the overwork has sort of, listen, I'm not going to lie. The overwork part has crept back in. Like I work too much, but I'm not going to mcdonald's at three in the morning um because i've been up all night working i'm not um you know pounding caffeine all day um i can't in fact i haven't had caffeine for four years so like it's wow yeah and i loved it yeah (laughs) i really liked it but um but i never drank or did drugs or smoked or anything like that so that was sort of like my one vice was like just like eating like a jerk <laughs> that was taken away. <laughs> so I can't do that anymore. But yeah, so I do, I am overworking a little bit, but um, I'm not, you know, staying up late with stimulants like I used to. And, yeah. So and, you um, gave up sugar, salt and caffeine on the same day. On the same day. Yeah. Amazing. I would find it hard to give up even one of those. completely. Well, you don't know how bad I felt that day. Okay. I felt, I felt so bad. Like, I didn't care if I worked again. Like I, it was just like, you know what you, uh, you need to work on staying alive this month. Um, and then it was, okay, you need to work on staying alive this year. And then like, boy, at that point I was on like five drugs and, and now I'm down to two. So it's, um, a lot of it had to do with lifestyle change, but also just, you know, it was, there's this weird kind of toxic um, thing that men have in America, at least, where we feel like working ourselves to death is the right thing to do. 
um, because it's what our dads and our grandpas did. Yeah. Relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I can definitely. And yeah. it's less manly. It's like almost like you kind of brag about how much you overwork yourself. And uh, especially in comics, because uh, we're overcompensating because we're not really working. <laughs> we're, we're drawing pictures. Well, you well know? I mean, you're, I know you're being, you're being, you know, like self deprecating flip there. But I think also, too, part of it is that, um, you, you know, it's you're also make, trying to make a living, so you, yeah, it's not like I mean, you know, very few. It's not like you're getting paid like uh, fuck you money to draw a page, you know, a page. So right. you, you you know, you guys are like always like, well, let's see if I can do thirty pages in a month instead of right. twenty two because it means I can right. you know put some money in the bank. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it, there is this sort of romance of um, this like kind of martyrdom that comic book creators kind of indulge in that's thankfully going away now that um more sensible people are getting into the field and by more <laughs> sensible people i mean right. women right. Um, <laughs> who uh and and also just like younger younger millennial men that just understand that like why are you beating your brains out um you know for an industry that you know sees you as sort of a a kind of a fungible asset, you know, like if I stop making comic comics tomorrow, they'll find somebody else. Um, there'll be somebody to take my place. So don't kill yourself. Um, you know, make a living. Yes. But the whole romance of killing yourself for your, for your artwork or your career is, it needs to die. It needs to go extinct. And, um, it almost got me first. Um, but thankfully, um, thankfully he's not going to, well, kudos to you for for overcoming all that. Yeah, thanks. Um, not now. Now that the show's come, so how's that laptop going, Jason? Yeah, yeah it's, down or, it, right. it's like Casey Kasem coming in after the dog died. On the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, no. So, so I would I would imagine when you look at your career, I mean, one of the the when I was saying like how it. I mean, I think you articulated the, the, the balancing act, but the other thing too is I would imagine like there's been chapters like you, you, you were an artist and then like you said, you had a period, you started, you started becoming a writer and then you became both. Mm-hmm. Um, but like how, how else, if at all, has the industry changed? Uh, over, I mean, you know, again, th- 30 years is no joke. I mean, a, a lot of the industry itself has changed a ton, yeah. whether it be it's much more global now, it's, it's all mm-hmm. digital now. I mean, um, and just digital meaning, you know, how you, get the pages to, to each other. And um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, like what do, you, what do you think of the industry now? I mean, in terms of like the health and, 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 and uh, do you feel good about where, where we are as an industry and that sort of thing? And, and, you know, versus say where we've been in the past. Right. Um, I'm not going to steal this Joe Kubert line. Um, <laughs> Joe Kubert, used to famously say that he'd, he'd been through the death of comics six times. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, I've, I've, I've only been working at 30 years, so I think I've only been through it three times. Sure. Um, but it's always like, it's always doom and gloom. It's always like, Oh, the end is nigh. Even when it was booming, like people were like, Oh, this boom can't last. <laughs> right. Uh, I think people need to do a better job of separating the direct market superhero business from the comic book business. The comic book business is going great. Um, the direct market superhero business is, is really getting hit hard by piracy. 
Um, there's no other way to look at it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I know we agree on this. I, I, I say this all the time online. I know you're of the same mind. Yeah. Because, and, and, and like, I'm not trying to come down on the kids that do that. I'm just saying like there are more people know about comics and what's going on in comics than ever before. And not just from the movies, they know about what's going on. Like every day in, in house of 10 or I said it right. Didn't I? No, you said uh, it's powers of 10. Yeah, House ha- of X. <laughs> hey, yeah, sorry. House of X powers of 10. So, um, uh, everybody knows that's going on with that, but even though that book's only selling like 150,000 copies. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. But half a million people know what's going on in that book because right. a lot of people are not paying to read it. Just the way a lot of, you know, kids don't, kids don't pay to uh, listen to music or, yeah. you know, or even watch football. There's ways to pirate stream football. You know, so there's there's not much you can do about it. <laughs> like you can do the product, you can try to reach people, try to create more hardcore fans that are willing to support comics. Um, sort of that vinyl record model, you know, like most people aren't paying for their streaming music, but the hardcore fans will go buy that vinyl record, um, and so that's become that alternate revenue stream for artists. Um, and but some, I, some creators have 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 made that um, tried to make that point. I think it was Jim Zub maybe uh, a year or two ago with um, is it Skull Kickers? That was his book, right? Yeah, yeah. yes. You know, he he had a, a and I thought it was very thoughtful. He 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 shared his numbers. I think and I think it was even back on 4chan there were people posting and he came out and said, "Well, I know everybody expects me to lose my mind over this, but I actually think it's good." And he showed some numbers that once the stuff started going up on 4chan, the trade sales went up, right. but. But I think what's lost and what maybe not as many people remember is that he then subsequently updated that a few months ago, earlier this year, and yeah. said, I was wrong. I was yeah. wrong. Like, it was transient, <laughs> and, and I've, I've lost an insane amount. Like, to your point, yeah. lot, a lot more people tell me at cons that they love Skull Kickers than, like, I physically ever bought the book. Right. Like, you know, like like 5,000 people bought that book ever, and, and yeah. I get, you know, people at cons all over the world telling me how much they like the book. So, so um yeah, like, and and I, I, you know, I've talked about this a lot on the show, so people are probably groaning, but I, I think that um, you can certainly make the analogy with comics piracy to other forms of entertainment because they've all been pirated, sure. Yeah. But the thing that comics has going against it, and I think makes it harder for the industry to adjust to, is that you can download 300 comics in a very short period of time if you have a high bandwidth connection because a comic individually, the file is tiny. It's not a big thing. Versus, yeah. you know, music files are not that big, but they're much bigger than that. And then movie files are even larger than that. So while high-speed internet makes it relatively easy to pirate any of this stuff, uh, I think with comics, it's just, I mean, it's literally the click of a button. I mean, a kid can on his phone can have, you yeah. know, all the week's comics on his phone versus having to, like, wait to be at home and download it on his laptop and then, tra- like, like it's instant. So I, I just, yeah, and I don't know how you fix that because... Yeah, I don't also, know if it's fixable. Yeah, yeah I and the problem with it is, uh, like, I'm not. I know what the argument is. Like, I wasn't going to buy it anyway, um, so you should right. just be happy. Be happy somebody's reading it. Well, some of you would have bought it. <laughs> like, and when it comes to like, um, I can go back to Fiber. There, a book I did at Image, mm-hmm. and we knew that like, uh, just from going to like one popular torrent site, we could see that like an issue was being downloaded. Like, and these aren't aren't astronomical numbers. We could see our an issue was being downloaded like fifteen hundred times the week the book came out, which doesn't sound like a lot. Fifteen hundred, it's not a lot, but 
if your book's selling 6,000 copies, that's huge. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the difference between, uh, you know, if 500 people would have bought that, you know, that book could have hung around a little bit longer. Sure. So the, the margins are so slim in the direct market that you can't really survive stuff like that. Um, but comics themselves, the form, um, uh, my wife teaches third grade and it's the, it's the preferred way to read in third grade is mm -hmm. novels. Um, you know, like kids will just devour amulet or bone or, you know, dog man, whatever, uh, smile ghost. They eat all that stuff up. And then yeah. and we're, we're training like this whole new generation of people that are really comfortable with reading comics mm -hmm. and they're going to want to keep reading comics. And mm -hmm. so I think, uh, in that, at least in the graphic, in terms of the graphic novel market, I think the future is really bright. Yeah. And I think, I think the superhero comics are always going to be around one way or another. Like even if like everyone's all panicking about, you know, will AT&T even want to keep making comics, <laughs> you know, so they're going to be Superman comics 10 years from now, believe me. Um, they'll license it out to somebody else or something, but they're always going to be, you know, your superhero comics are still going to be there one way or another. Well, I, I know some of us are even, um, some of us, that, uh, folks in the in the Facebook group, when when Marvel started, ha when IDW started publishing yeah. Marvel action books, and it's like, okay, yeah. so why why would Disney even bother spending their money to publish stuff if they can just have a smaller company right. go ahead and and put out a Black Panther or Captain Marvel or, or Spider Man comic book? So it, it's yes, I do. Even even a smaller publisher like IDW, which doesn't really do superheroes except for. Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles for them to come and 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 take get the license for for one of the largest superhero companies out there. It's it's um yeah, and it's, that might it's weird. be the way it goes. That might be the future. I don't know. Um, people have been speculating about that for a long time. I mean, even as far back as when Marvel turned some of their books over to the Image guys. Um, oh, with Heroes Reborn. Yeah, during the Heroes Reborn era, that a lot of people kind of saw it that way um, as sort of a a sort of like a baby step towards that mm -hmm. farm farming out your characters. But it's the way things are now. I mean, I don't think, and I don't think Marvel or DC would do that because it is right now. It's the cheapest R and D department on the face of the earth. That's the That's thing. True. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can create, you can create billion dollar characters for an investment of, a, you know, like under a hundred thousand dollars. Um, yeah, you know, and it's, you even, it's even better than that for people don't realize because you know as 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 we even alluded to your career, I mean, most people that make comics are not even full, you know, FTEs, full time employees. They're they're freelance. So, so like it's just from a P and L perspective for these big corporations, it's like a no brainer. I mean, I like oh, I, yeah. I, I had the, so I'm with you. I mean, like the 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 form factor or the frequency or the overall budget for them or all that 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 all may change over time. I mean, it always changes, but I, I think. To your, I think I think we all agree with you that like it's we're, we're going to be long gone before there yeah. aren't Batman and Superman and and X Men comics on the shelves in some fashion. Yeah, form. comics will find a way. You know, they do. So you've done a lot of work in the last few years with AfterShock. Um, is that just like because you worked for them? You know that initial time and it went well, and you thought, well, why not? Like I like them, or is there a, is there a connection there? Like, do, did you have a connection with Mike Martz and stuff? Or I'm just curious, yeah. Like, uh, what it is I'm, about AfterShock particularly? Uh, I've known Joe Pruitt, who's sort of the founder, who's the founder right. of the company, sure. and I've known him since our Caliber days together. 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sense. he was he was an editor or publisher at Caliber when right. um, about the time I was doing a lot of stuff there. So, um, and we we had this. Uh, Joe had this idea for what eventually became Aftershock at an earlier time, like for for a couple of years before that, we were trying to get a publisher going as sort of a, <laughs> this sounds disparaging, but sort of a low rent image, you know, just like, uh, just kind of like a more of a creator's co-op kind of company. And we were trying to get that up and off the ground and it kept sputtering out and not working out and the lineup would change and the creators would drop in and out. And so Joe was like, well, I'm learning enough about how to start a company and I know how to treat creators. So I'll just start it. I'll just start a publisher with this framework on my own. And that's what Aftershock became. And it's, it's, um, it is a creator focused publisher, which, um, makes it, uh, able to compete with places like image or IDW for creators, new properties. Um, and that's why you see like, the level of talent that they do have there is pretty impressive um, because it offers the kind of freedom that you can't get other places. And um, I think that's what drew me to them. Besides, besides loving Joe, that sort of freedom to explore ideas that other publishers might not take a chance on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's always hard to know from our end as the consumer like how these publishers are doing, you know, like, like, I mean, yeah, like we can really only judge it. Like you said, by the talent that they have to create the books and then the frequency and the supply of books. And it seems like aftershock has a pretty steady, ever increasing supply of titles, like you said, and and high end creators. So I can only conclude like things must be going reasonably well. Yeah. It's not easy out there though. I mean, it's tough. They're competing with, um, and I love image. I do books at image all the time. So I don't want this to come off as sort of a slam and image, but aftershock is competing with a business model. That's impossible to compete with. Um, image, the image deal is unbelievably good. <laughs> like for a creator. Sure. Um, they don't, they don't take any of your property. Um, and they print your book and it gets huge exposure and it's a, a great place to be. It's, it's this juggernaut that just won't slow down. And, for a young startup company trying to poach that same caliber of talent, um, you don't really have all you really have to offer them is some more upfront money than image can provide usually. Um, but for you to make your money on the back end, you have to own a part of the property. So at image, you never have to worry about that. So it's hard if you're, if you're a kind of creator who can write their own ticket, like if you're like Jeff or, uh, if you're Jason Aaron or, you know, if you're a big name in comics, it makes a lot of sense to do your books at image where, you know, you don't have to share with anybody. And, uh, and so all these other companies that want to do creator own stuff like vault and IDW and black mask and, um, dark horse, they all have to compete with this business model. That's sort of impossible to assail and they have to find a way around it. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I think, in fact, well, last time we had Jeff on, um, we specifically talked about the fact that, to your point, like at this point in his career, like why not? I think we even asked him, like, why don't you just do all your books in Image, right? Like, I mean, like, like because like you can, your name can sell a book now. So yeah, 
But, uh, but you know, he said he kind of like what you were saying with your freelance career, like he just likes to mentally be involved with multiple publishers at all yeah. times because you never know. And also yep. he gives, you know, Dark Horse was a was hugely important to him earlier in his career. And he feels a, a bit of loyalty to yep. that. And and I respect all those things. So I, so I think it's great. I, I, I think. Oh, I, and also those other places offer um, more of an editorial infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right, it, right, right. You know, like image, you have to sort of hire if you want an editor, an editor, you've got to hire one. And then that editor has to sort of take on the role of dealing with all the physical you know, dealing with the, with, um, getting the book to the printer, you know, get, you know, proofing the books, all that stuff that you don't have to deal with that aftershock or, or, um, IDW or dark horse because they have staff for that. So yeah, there are advantages to going those places. Um, and also you, a lot of this business comes down to personalities. You just like working with certain people. <laughs> so you want to work with them and some people you don't like, and you don't want to work with them anymore. So sure. a lot of it comes down to that. Yeah. It's very similar to what Matt Wagner told us because he's got he's got Grendel at Dark Horse and and of course there was the die his his, his sister in law connection there but um, and then Mage over at Image and yeah uh, and he's worked does, for DC does a lot of freelance for Dynamite too yes yeah yeah and that's oh then that, that I was going to ask you because I you know th- this will perk events up so how how was it um, so so for properties like Green Hornet. Uh, and even um, to 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 a similar degree, uh, maybe working with Alex Ross on things like the Black Terror, like how knowing knowing how you knowing your style for for the modern day um, characters, um, what was what, what's the mindset when it came time to, to working on on a pole character? Um, I. I felt like a lot of, I felt like I had a really free hand on the black terror because it was, well, for one thing, he's a public domain character. So he's been around forever. Um, you can, you can take whatever you want to be his continuity and you can drop whatever you want as continuity. Like it, it's almost like dealing with a new character. Um, but he does have this sort of fearsome, um, uh, a character built up around him and that's fun to play with those sort of tropes i i i joked with people that i sort of wrote him as um uh the clint eastwood character in el camino like he's just sort of like <laughs> this man out of time mm-hmm. super like super grump you know and um every time you work on a character at at dynamite um that's like that like lone ranger or green hornet or bionic man they have a lot of baggage but Dynamite is such a nimble, fast company. They're like, just, they're like, you know, have fun, take a new take on it. If it doesn't work, we'll try it again. You know, so, uh, the, the Green Hornet take was, was largely what came from Kevin's film treatment of the character. Um, same with Bionic Man. And it was mm-hmm. our job to sort of like, you know, use that as a springboard and just keep developing the characters when, when Kevin left. So it's, it's, I, it's a really, um, in that regard, it's a really fun place to work because the uh, same thing when I worked on the gold key characters there, they're sort of like, have fun, do what you want. And if it, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know, we're going to try again next year. So uh, be yourself. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to work like that. It's a good approach. Yeah. Um, being a fan of those pulp characters, it's also very maddening at times because 
<laughs> right now, Dynamite's going to relaunch another Black Terror. Right. And it's like the fourth time or fifth yeah. time, I think. And concurrently, yeah. Antarctic is publishing Black Terror stories. Right. In well, their, you could do one or two. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I love the character. <laughs> I, think he, I think he's great, but it's just so um, reading as many comics as we do, after a while, all yeah. of the stories start to stack up, and it's like, okay, wit, what company published that story, and, and is it canon in the story that right. in the universe I'm reading now, or is that at the other place? And it's just, and even um, Eric Larson used, yeah. you know, uh, Daredevil and the Black Terror in Savage Dragon. So it's like these characters have such a legacy, but it's all over the place. Yeah, it's a, it's, but that's sort of like it makes them more kind of reflective of comics as this sort of almost folkloric art form right you know it's almost like this oral history that's building up around the black terror um and he becomes this almost mythic figure you know some you 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 take part of it like all the stories that accrue around hercules over time like some of those are canon and some aren't and some are just cute stories and um it's it's sort of the fate of all heroic um, figures, I think. It's mm. kind of neat to see it happen in real time. And and canon doesn't really matter to no. me in the big picture, but it's nice to have, as Jason says, the gravitas of knowing um, Black yeah. Terror just killed this baby. You know, right. He wouldn't. But uh, 10 issues ago, this baby was shown in the hands of another, you know, I mean, another character. And yeah. it, you start to jumble the the uh, the characters and the the situations when it's being published by more than one publisher it's just right maybe i'm just getting old but uh, that's probably know. a large it, that's probably a large uh, part it could be uh there's an ongoing um i'm trying to get jason to love the pulp characters but man <laughs> it it is rough he it, even the mere mention of pulp he's like yeah no i'm out that's good you you yeah. just enjoy it but, we um, just, I just loved Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. I was just going to say he did. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not. It's, I mean, I don't. When I think of Pulp, I think of, yeah, of but, Green Hornet, Lone Ranger. Right, it's, right. That it's was the most un, yeah, unpulpy Peter Cannon that, <laughs> that ever was. Right, right. <laughs> it was. But yeah, I I have to go back to that. Like the probably the best experience I had at Dynamite in terms of like creative fulfillment was I I wrote that one shadow one shot. Um, I, it was just an annual. But it would just felt cool to be working on the shadow, yeah, and 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 have a free hand, you know, just sort of do it the way I wanted to do it. And that is one thing I really have to tip my hat to Dynamite for is once they make the decision to hire you, they're all in. You know, they're like, do it your way, mm-hmm. which is which is which is <laughs> which kind of it goes a long way. It can make up for. Um, not getting a good a page rate as you normally do. Um, uh, it can be made up for just by having a fun experience. Right. Sure. Yeah. I could see that. And yeah, we, we see that with IDW too, like with like Dash Shaw doing Clue or, you know, or right. uh, Kate McLeod doing, doing Karate Kid, right? It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You're like, uh, all right, man, like you do you, but it, then it ends up being awesome because they're basically given the keys to the kingdom. Just do whatever he wants. Tell right. cool well, story. Kieran Gillen's, uh, Thunderbolt could never have been created any other way. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's why. I mean, I think we all, you know, we we all love that book. It was it was just a a special book because they let him just just do something audacious yeah. with it. Yeah, that's it, why I treasure uh, something like like 
Strange Tales that that Marvel put out a few years ago when they had all like the oh, like, like Raphael yeah. Grandpa doing doing you know there's just yeah. there's something about seeing seeing creators that you wouldn't normally see on something like that. Well, like when Farrell Dalrymple did Omega the Unknown, it's like oh, yeah every every yeah. now and then like Marvel and DC get cool right like they're yeah. like all right let's just let someone do <laughs> something like they bring fun. back yeah. and not comics. to not to mention cool but who also appeared within the pages of Dalrymple's Omega the Unknown. Gary Panther. Yes. And it was yeah. glorious <laughs> to see Gary in a Marvel a while, For your 60s, I'm going to buy you a page from that. Vincent. Oh, I oh. would never stop loving you. Well, you already don't love... You would never stop loving me already, it's, but that's... Okay. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. But for every Kieran Gillen, Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt, under this, this way of working, you get Christopher Priest on Vampirella, where it's just like, <laughs> you just don't get it, my son. <laughs> this that's is, facts. This yeah, is so facts. wrong. <laughs> yep. Whatever. Yeah. So, Phil, uh, we we I mean, we're kind of jumping around uh, chronologically, but uh, tell the world, like, how'd you get into comics? Like, were you, you just diehard fan, big two fan when you were a kid? Yeah. You know, all things when you were a kid. I, I loved everything. I loved um, I loved Marvel and DC, like every good kid did. But I also just anytime I saw something that wasn't Marvel or DC. I flipped out and I grabbed it nice, uh, just because I wanted to see what else was going on in this world. Sure. And, um, like, I think I own every Pacific comic, like everything. They oh, put really? Yeah. Major cool. props, major props. Uh, yep. But I was like, you know, I'd grab every Charlton I could get my hand on. Um, you know, uh, I would buy, I'd go to a, like a, 13 years old. I'd go to head shops. Oh, <laughs> and buy like Fantagores, you know, like whatever. Separated you know, at birth, long lost brother. Amazing, yeah. 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 And yeah. I, I, I do whatever it took to get like what else, you know, like Warren magazines, whatever was out there. I grab it. Yes. And so, like when I was in college, was when the turtles blew up. And overnight, and you know how the, you know the tur like the turtles was like they put it on a credit card. You know, yep. they put the first issue on a credit card and it cost them like $4,000 and, you know, returned $40,000. And a lot of people paid attention to that. And it's like, I have a credit card. <laughs> like, I'm going to become a comic book publisher. So overnight, um, the number of comic book publishers just exploded and they all needed talent and the bar got really lowered. <laughs> so I went to work. I was very, I was very bad, and I worked for some very bad companies, and that black and white explosion. But I was working in comics. I was getting thirty five dollars a page. I thought I was king of the world, you know. Um, and I just sort of started climbing away, way up out of that black and white explosion, and into sort of the indie explosion that followed that, and then kept on climbing that ladder till I was. I don't know how old I was when I started working. At like 23, I got a Marvel gig, 24. And um, shortly after that, I got Swamp Thing, and I felt like I'd made it. And it's just been sort of a steady a steady boat ride since then. Two things came to mind. Uh, remember coming up as a Marvel and DC fan, you're used to the, the production quality of Marvel and DC books, and you see your first Charlton book, and even as a kid, you're like, these guys don't have any money. 
<laughs> I think you mean I think you mean you smell your first draw. Right. <laughs> Crappy paper, ragged edges on 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 the on the paper just just badly printed off register covers, but there's yeah. a magic to Charlton Comics. Yes, there was. And they they really did smell like a tire fire. They did. But, uh, <laughs> but they it was cool because it was a little bit subversive because it wasn't it's what made Marvel cool when Marvel started in the sixties. It was a little bit rough around the edges, but it was exciting and fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and DC was slick as hell, but hidebound. And so every time this, every time a new publisher would pop up and I'm counting even today and they're sort of rough around the edges or kind of half-assed. That's still exciting to me. That's still that low fi the appeal of like a low fi mixtape, you know? Um, and Charlton definitely had that in abundance. Um, Kamiko had that, um, Dark Horse had that when they started, you know, just doing black and white books. Caliber too. Yeah. Go Caliber. Yeah. And it was an exciting time. And we had our book at Paul Tobin and I had our very first like regular series at Caliber, a book called Fringe. Oh yeah. Oh wow. That's right. Yeah. And we were kids. We were just like right out of college and um, back then, you could put out a book like like Fringe from Caliber. It would sell like fifteen thousand copies because it was just yeah, kind how of crazy a, is that, right? Yeah, yeah, it was just kind of a boom time. And you now, if you're selling fifteen thousand, like an image, you're 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 like near the top oh, of the heap. Superstar, yeah. yeah. But I mean, we were selling fifteen thousand, like six thousand people were reading them. You know, that was the nature of that market, right? Right. But um, still, is exciting. And so, like, I I'm always sort of been drawn to that. Um, uh, whatever is an upstart thing, I'd like to be part of it. You know, I'm, I still find that invigorating. Um, so I, that's why there's always going to be a part of me that, like, no matter what kind of assignments I have at Marvel or DC, um, I'm always going to be looking to, like, at least write something at some place like Vault, you know, right. or or Black Mask or these new places. I just want to. Sure. I find that atmosphere really fun. Do you, do you have any any uh, at this point in your career? Do you have any stories that you're have yet to tell that you're just dying to tell? Like whether oh, it's yeah. something you write or you draw oh, or both. I, I have a big board. Oh yeah. Um, of all these books that I want to do, and uh, I also just had my fifty third birthday. So like, I looked at that big board, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to make it. <laughs> okay. I am not going to live long enough to do all these books that I want to do. Um, which is at once sobering, but also really invigorating. Cause you're like, ah, I'm not running dry. You know, sure. I'm always going to have ideas to do more things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, you know, at the rate I do things, I, I usually have a career own book a year come out. Yeah. Yeah. Someplace. And you know, if I work for another 20 years, that'd be great. <laughs> Who knows if that's going to happen? But I have more than 20 books up there on that list. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going to quite work out. So it's, um, uh, yeah, I always have stories I want to tell. Always. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a testament. Here, here's an exa- I'll, I'll give you a good yeah. example of it. Like, um, I get asked to pitch inventory stories at DC a lot because um, if, if creators are running late on books, they like to put pressure on them by having an inventory ready to roll. 
and <clears throat> I will beat my brains. Like I'll, they'll ask me to write a character I've never thought about before. And I'll be like, oh man, I don't know if I can do that character. And I'll go to bed that night and I'll wake up the next day and I'll have four ideas for that character. Wow. You know, that's, that's what keeps me in comics and that's what makes it fun to me. <laughs> I am willing to beat my brains out yeah. to write a, an inventory issue that people might never see mm-hmm. of, you know, the lowliest character you can imagine at Marvel or DC, you know? Well, speaking I, I, of that, yeah. it, it's a, it's a testament to how much David loves you and Andy Parks, where he actually read Irredeemable Ant-Man. I, I, I didn't have to push him. He David <laughs> David hated the character. I hate yes. Eric O'Grady. Eric, with, yes, with, he, with a passion. Yeah. But he that works. He's an asshole. Right. And, yes. and no, I, no, but yes, yes, you're right. But, that, but, I, but I work with assholes. I know assholes. I don't want to read comic books with yeah. assholes. I read comics to just, you know, but it's, yeah. And, and, and also I was, I was kind of... Um, I was at that stage where I just kind of felt that um, Kirkman was just not. Was, I, I felt he was a little full of himself, and I was just like, okay, but I, I wasn't. I didn't care about the writer. I didn't care about the character. I was, I was fully supporting those issues for you and Andy. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, man, he used to bitch like nobody's business. <laughs> I, I never. I don't know when the last time I hate read something. It's just one of those things where it's. But no, and, and it's and, and, when, and, and like when the last issue was solicited, you had to be like pumping your fist. I was just, well, no, because hey, it meant that you know you guys weren't going to get. I, it, it was the story was done. Yeah, I mean, okay, great. It's that's fine, but it, it's also it's like I still want. Uh, like I said, I mean. Kevin Smith on Green Arrow was like, okay, that's great. But then, you know, you and Andy on it is is just is perfect. I didn't really care about the story. I didn't care about Stanley. It, it was it was a cool story. I love having Ollie back because again, that's um Connor Hawk is a cool character, but it's you know, just I Hal's my Green Lantern and Ollie's my Green Arrow, so it's nice to have that Kevin was able to bring him back and that you and Andy were along for the ride and then and then Kevin left and you had Brad come on and then of course Judd and, and I was just, I was with it for it all. But yeah, no, I, there are some, you, you guys, especially you and Andy are, are creators that I will follow to whatever you're doing. So well, I'm glad um, you feel that way. Well, that yeah, question is chased, but I gl- I'm glad. You well, feel. yeah, I know. you can't, there's just certain things you can't, it's like, you can't pick your friends. Right. But there's just, right. it's, it's, um, yeah, no, as, as Vince said, he loved the character. He loved the book. Um, so at least there, there was that, but no, yeah. it's, <laughs> I appreciate it. No, seriously. Yeah. I was more giddy to see the effect you guys were having on David than actually <laughs> enjoying the book, yeah. but, but yeah. Bro loved watching him suffer. He did. He, did. he still does. Yeah. But <laughs> and, and it, it was, it was nice that it was something that, uh, you guys were able to, um, pull that out of, out of the enemy, the state storyline, because of course that's when Wolverine takes down. The whole yeah. helicarrier and whatnot, oh, and was, yeah. I, I just I it's love that now. whole the, the the way you guys built off that. But yeah, um, yeah was, no, I, it was like the um, I think it's only the second Marvel book I ever drew, and remains the second Marvel book I ever drew. Um, well, the first one, Ultimate Marvel Team Up. Yeah, Marvel Team Up, and then well, I did a little, you know, just little things here and there. Right. The only the only series I ever drew was Ant Man for Marvel. And that it's kind of boggles my mind because I was definitely a Marvel kid growing up. And, um, I just, it just happens to be like 
you know, you know, no matter what your favorite team is, you play for the team that drafts you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I, but when I say I was a Marvel kid, that's like I'm fifty one, forty nine, a Marvel kid. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I looked. You know, Marvel wasn't putting out anything like Ragman, and like Ragman was my jam when I was a kid. There you go. Yep. Well, listen, we have to. Uh, while, while we have you, I, I have to. We have to speak on some original art because yes. uh, we are we are both we are both avid original art collectors, and uh, but I have to say that you belong in a group of people that I am a wannabe for, which is that I started seriously collecting comic art uh, a little more than a decade ago, and mm-hmm. so while I'm very proud of the collection I've amassed, uh, um, you know I definitely miss the sweet spot of arbitrage. Yes. That came I did too. Decade before, and I, I uh, for for those that don't know, uh, a lot of us post our stuff on a site called Comic Art Fans, and Phil has a gallery up there, which I recommend you all do. Just go to Comic Art Fans and search for Phil's name, and it'll come up. Um, and you have an incredible collection. And the thing about your collection, uh, aside from from, I mean, there's some absolute jaw, jaw dropping grail pieces, but. The thing about your collection relative to really, I mean, like mine or, or, or many other people that I know in the hobby that, that have big collections is you have an incredibly eclectic uh, yeah. taste. I, I mean, and, and and I mean, I'll let you speak to it, but but I mean, just to give the, the, the listeners some some idea, like just looking quickly. I mean, you have like, you know, Nestor Redondo, Ragman, Michael Golden, Micronos, Jordi Bernay, Torpedo. Jason Pages, you know, Premiani Doom Patrol, but then you have like uh, Jim Lee X-Men and you have uh, Eduardo Risso Batman. Like you just run the gamut. I mean, you have, you yeah. have, you know, Pete Bag, you have David Mazzucchelli. And, and uh, like the thing about it is not only is it eclectic, but you have like at least a page, an example of a lot of the very great seminal comics, both indie and big two that a lot of us have, are nostalgic for. And so, uh, I tip my cap to you because you have a, 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 an awesome collection, and and I just, uh, yeah, I just love to hear how you, you know when you started collecting art. Um, it seems to me just from our chats on Twitter and and also your gallery that you, you do continue to acquire pieces. Yes. Um, you know, are you are you in that mode now where you like trade pieces now? Or you sell pieces to to buy other pieces? You know, and, and uh, that sort of thing. I just want to hear about your experiences because you have an amazing sure. collection. I'm I'm what is known to other collectors as a black hole. Like I, when I get a piece, it stays. Yeah, uh, same. I'm the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I have like close to four hundred plus pieces, and I think I can I I can count on one hand the number I've sold, mm-hmm. and I've always sold those to get another piece. Sure. To trade it for another piece. Um, no, I. You talk about the glory days when you know when collecting comics comic art was a real honey hole. I missed that too. I mean, you missed it it way more than I did, but guys even five years older than me, um, really cashed in. Um, Andy tells a story about going to see John Byrne (laughs) in, I think Oklahoma city during the, you know, during the peak of the X-Men, you know, his time on the X-Men. And he had a stack of pages there, and, and Andy's in high school. And Andy's like, how much are one of these pages? And John's like, well, little boy, those are $50. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like John. 
And Andy's like, oh, shit, I can't swing that. $50. But Andy has a friend who already who's a little bit older and has a straight job. And that man bought an armful. And that's what that man does for a living now is sell off burn pages. <laughs> you know, he just he's like, oh, I need some money. I'll sell off a page. I, I have a cover. I need to, you know, this will cover me this year. Damn. Um, so that's that sweet period was a little bit earlier than even when I got into it. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it started when I started working in comics and I started going to conventions and you could actually see the pages in front of you and, you know, hanging on dealers walls. And it was just so incredible to me. I was just like, Oh, I need to, you know, I can own owning the comic book is cool, but there's only one of these pages. You know? Yeah. It's intoxicating, right? Yeah. And I can buy these, all these artists that were like influences on me. I can buy them and study how they do these things. Like I can actually see what they erased or what they kept or what they whited out. Um, it was like holding like a Rosetta stone, you know, <laughs> to figure mm-hmm. out how all this fantastic art was made. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so like the very first thing I ever bought, um, I bought from a classified ad in the CBG. God. <laughs> it didn't even have a picture. Oh. It was it was a description of the page and it was a bogus description. It was like, it was like oh, fantastic page of um, uh, Black Goliath transforming. I'm like, oh, I need that. <laughs> and I, so I sent my $35 in and I got back what was a very boring page with uh, Black Goliath changing in the very last of the nine panel grid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he's oh. barely like he's barely changing yeah. but still it was cool to me sure and right after that i bought a from the same source cbg i bought a jack kirby amazing adventures page for any mm. for 125 dollars oh. and that set me rolling so as soon as i started making real money in comics like as soon as i started working on swamp thing that's when i got serious about it and started going to shows specifically to buy art um, right. I had this deal with my wife and with myself that what I made at the show, I could spend at the show. God damn, so, that's beautiful. So if I went and I did enough sketches, I could round up 500 bucks, and that would be my budget for original art of that show. And so back then, with $500, you could buy a Frank Miller Daredevil page. Yep. Um, you could buy a Bernie Wrights and Swamp Thing page. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I was lucky to get in like all the stuff that looks like unattainable high ticket stuff in my gallery is stuff I got when it wasn't. Yeah. So like I have a Mike That Mobius Punisher. How'd you come up with that? Because I never I paid, would have guessed that Mobius even did, drew Punisher. I did pay through the teeth for that. Okay. Um uh that was for that Mar- that Marvel poster series. Oh, oh yes, the Iron right. and okay, yes. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. makes sense, yeah. And that was a preps a prep. Um, painting that he did for that but like most of those things I got like when they were so like and even then I was balking at the price a little bit like there's a I have a Mignola Batman page which is rarest hen's teeth and people it all my pieces say not for sale on them mm-hmm. <laughs> I get emailed about that Mignola Batman page every oh month. I can imagine yeah and 
people throw crazy, crazy numbers at me over it. And I bought it for $125. Because that's just the way it was now. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's insane. Now, now just now stuff is expensive just because it's old. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's exactly like, right. If you ever told me that a Jose, God bless Jose Delbo, but if you ever told me that a Jose Delbo Wonder Woman, but they are now because they're old, you know? Um, and that's, you know, and p- plus a lot of collectors are like me. They're black holes. They don't let stuff go. So people, yeah, that, sure. people that are entering the, the um, hobby that want a page from the seventies, there aren't a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So, so like if it's not super exhilarating, like if it's a Don Perlin ghostwriter page, it's not, you know, blowing anybody out the doors off anybody with excitement. It's still a page from 1977. Exactly. You know, and people want that. Yeah. So that's why you're seeing the prices rise on stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I think that, uh, it's, it's one of those weird things because doing what I do for a living, like I, I can't objectively tell people that like, I can't buy into this idea that, Oh, collectibles just buy them because they always go up in value. Like, because I like fundamentally, I just think like that's not like good advice to give to someone. It's not, but, true. but no, I know. But but I've lived a, a very different life, which is to say yeah. that when I look back, and it's whether whether I was collecting back issues or or slabbed issues or or, or art in the last ten years, like it's oh, my biggest regrets are universally, and I think this is true of most collectors are universally the things you didn't find a way to acquire. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm saying just for monetary, like, again, I, I'm much like you. I'm a black hole. I don't sell anything. I, I also have never bought a single thing with the idea that it would then generate or, or I mean, appreciate to the point where I would then monetize it. Like, I mean, a lot of things I own ha- are worth a lot more theoretically than I paid for them, but I didn't buy them with that in mind. Um, but But that being said, when I look back, I think, so many things that I thought were egregiously priced would be worth 10, 20, 30 times that now. Yeah. And, and it's not like I look back on it and think like, Oh, I could have made a lot of money. I look back on it and think I could have paid it then. And it'd been a little painful, but I would yeah. have it now and be so thrilled to have it because I would see what it would cost. Because now it's good. It would cost me a, a something that would lead to my wife wanting to divorce me. Oh yeah. So uh, I have a great story about that. <laughs> Um, back toward the earlier part of my career, I was at a show in Kansas City, and a guy had a bunch of McFarlane Spider-Man pages on his wall. Oh, no. Jesus. And, uh, and behind it, I could make out, just barely peeking out, a Neil Adams Batman page. And he didn't, it's like he didn't give a shit about the Neil Adams. <laughs> right? So I was like, how much for that Neil Adams Batman? He's like, that's quite a bit. And I'm like, how much? He's like, 150. Oh, no, Jesus God. Christ. <laughs> and I was like, I will take that off your hands. And and the, while all this while all the Spider-Man pages were 400. And I was like, I'll take that off your hands, you sucker. <laughs> but I but the 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 tenor of this story story has changed over time. Because when I first told it, he was the sucker. Now I'm the sucker. I should have bought all those Spider-Man pages. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And and I could buy anything I want after that, you know, because I got, I could have been sold selling those off. Yep. But I was more and what I, I wound up giving the 
Batman, the Neil Adams page to Andy because he loves Neil Adams Batman. He does. But, but, um, you know, I thought, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. You know, it's just like we, you don't know what's going to blow up. You really don't. It's just a matter of like, there's a large demographic issue to it. Um, that's why you're seeing stuff like, like what's really popping right now is late stage burn. Yep. A lot of people thought it was trash. Yep. Not me. I liked it. But like X-Men Hidden Years, it's expensive now. It was cheap. Now it's expensive. Huh. Um, so I remember one of the first cons I went to, this is way before I was into comic art, you know, mm. but I was, I, I loved, I was a kid of the, you know, a kid of the nineties. So I loved all the image guys. And I remember being at, uh, it was, it was wizard world Philly. And I was walking yeah. through artist alley. And, uh, I can't, I wish I could for life. me remember which of the reps it was, but it was like, I don't remember which rep it was, but some rep, you know, had some set up and I was looking through and I, I remember asking if he had any, Liefeld X-Force or New Mutants pages. And he did, and he laughed as if he yeah. like, well, nobody wants these. But he laughed and said, sure, here you go, kid. <laughs> and then I remember them being like something like 100, 200 bucks, whatever each. And like, I, I, I you know, so that's was more like, oh, I, I can't, you know, I don't have the budget for yeah. this. I was like, anyway, I think it was either just, and it was either, my, it was either my senior year of college or like a year or two right after college, but I was broke. So I was like, oh, cool, man. I guess he does have that neat, maybe, you know. And then I thought, okay, next year if I come back, I'll I'll try and save some money. I'll bring 100, 200 bucks and maybe get one. Uh, and then it never happened. I ended up going to conventions right. for a bunch of years because I moved to New York and started working and so forth and so on. And then I get back to it and, you know, the rest is history, right? I mean, I mean yeah. those, 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 those same pages now are, are hoarded by the Donnellys and other guys for, you know, and, yep. and every now and then one comes up up for, you know, 25, 30 grand. I mean, it's like, yeah. okay. See, now, so. now, my favorite Jason not buying a Liefeld page story involves Rob not having square. Yeah. Well that was, yeah. Yeah. As years ago at New York comic and granted, yes, it would have been, it would have been a difficult um, story for, for Jason to sell to his wife to buy, but he probably would have, been able to worm his way out of it and and he would have went home with oh, that Oh, I went page. to an ATM. I, I tried, but I couldn't take... It was $1,000. Rob had a... Had, Rob, had, Rob had an X-Force uh, commission. It was commission. He drew in a commission of, of all the X-Force team. And it was just sitting there and it was $1,000. I think David Ryan said, Wynn had inked it. Yeah, yeah. And as David said, it was... He didn't have... Take credit cards and I didn't have $1,000. It was... It, was, it, was, it wasn't yeah. the first day that I didn't have $1,000 in cash, so... Went to the ATM, tried to get a thousand dollars cash, but you know my my bank wouldn't let me take that much out, so it just never happened. And uh, yeah, I, I I I lament that. Jason, yeah. uh, let me tell you about a concept called Daddy's Money. <laughs> <laughs> Speak on it. This is money your wife doesn't know about. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, the stash, the stash. My dad used to call it the stash. Um, uh, no, it's it's my wife did know about it, but it's that deal I was talking about. Like if I made it at the con, I could spend it at the con. Right, right, yeah. And that was sort of like daddy's money. Well, not but, only did you get a earlier start, so you got to get some. I mean, while you maybe missed the the huge window of value, you still got some value that I didn't oh, yeah. get. But oh yeah, big you time. also you also benefit from something which I am in, 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 exceedingly jealous of, which is that as an artist, uh, you are able to a trade and yeah. b you're able to be at a con, like you said, and monetize at the con. And then, like you said, what your wife doesn't know doesn't hurt her. 
I am a I am a lowly speaker of things about comics. I don't write nor draw them. Yeah. So when I go to a con, it's it's well understood by the wife that every dollar is an output, not an input. So uh, yeah. So you know, I have a teeny yeah, tiny contribution to this this conversation. Uh, before I met David and Jason, so we're talking at least thirteen to fifteen years ago, probably more. I'm on eBay. And I'm looking, I just did a search for um, Alex Nino because I love Alex Nino. And all these Bronze Age pages came up from the horror and the the war DC books. And there was Ernie Chan, Nestor Redondo, Alex Nino for like 18 bucks a piece. (laughs) And no, no, no. And this is the one time, you know me, I mean, I don't buy much original art but i do buy what i love and i couldn't resist an alex nino page for 18 bucks who could so i walked away with 10 pages and at the time that was a lot of money to spend on original art but i i own nino and redondo and you know like i said and i i love them and i'll never part with them but at the time 18 dollars was wow i'm gonna spend 18 bucks on this page on a piece of paper. Yes. And the, you know, it has still had all the DC paste up things and the story oh. continues after next page. And yeah, um, I just love them. Yeah. The, the, the I'm, I'm glad that there was, it was a, I don't think it was C2E2. It may, yes. It may have been one of the early C2E2s. And I saw the, uh, the stack of, of green arrow pages at, at Andy's table. And yeah. I had it in my hand for the longest time and I, I, I lamented it and, and, and I was just like, you know what, I didn't buy it one year, went back the next year, it was there, had to get it. because um, I figured at that point now it was it was meant to be. Andy signed it, you signed it, it's 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 going to be on a frame and on the wall here. That that's the only time I think I can recall that I, I held off on getting something and then because last time at Heroes, our last uh, this last year at Heroes, um, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez had a bunch of things on his table. A lot of them were prelims and 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 yeah, rough sketches. But he doesn't and, charge enough. If he's there alone, he does not. I yeah. I have the I have the prelim for um, Action Comics One Thousand, his variant cover, and I absolutely adore it. And it's not it's not on it's it's not on Bristol. It's not on on, right. on Comic Board. It's a, it's a smaller like letter size A four page and and i absolutely treasure it yeah i was at a show once where he was selling batman versus Hulk pages oh for uh, like 400 bucks and i had to go to him and say these are thousand dollar pages jose don't do this and, but they were all gone <sighs> people had descended because they heard you know yeah, yeah. but but you know, to him, it's sort of like, eh, I'll make another. <laughs> That's know? true. Yeah. Which was, was gonna say now, do, do you do you play favorites? Do you have pages that are your favorites? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I I buy stuff. Um, mostly if it's a artist that's influenced me you know if if you go through my gallery you'll see there are certain artists i have like multiple pages from. sure yeah and those are like kirby and toth and uh tony you know of, of more recent guys tony salmons who i love um 
I'll just have like multiple examples or Joe Kubert, you know, have multiples. If, if there's somebody that really can teach me a lot, I have multiple Frank Miller's stuff like that. You have multiple boyettes. That's one of Vince's. Yes. Oh, good old Pat. Yeah. There's stuff that like, also some stuff I just feel like, you know, this is the oddball stuff. And if I don't curate it, people are going to forget about it. But that has not been the case with Pat. The market has caught up to Pat. Hmm. Um, used to be able to get Pat Boya pages for, you know, under a hundred bucks. Yeah. And, and now his stuff is finally starting to pull what it's worth. The uh, one artist I would invest in, and I don't know if the market is uh, very large uh, in terms of, you know, price per page, Tom Sutton. I'd buy a Tom Sutton page in a second. Oh yeah, it's caught up. No, it's caught up. Damn it. Tom even, the, even the Star Trek pages? Uh, not as much. No, probably well, not the Star Trek pages. His 70s stuff really has especially stuff he inked um over other people is oh. is blowing up too so like if you can get sutton stuff from the mid 70s it's it's a lot nowadays damn yeah it's, it's just you know like i said it's demographics yeah, it's right cool. it's like uh it's why like alan davis excalibur pages right now are just going through the roof yeah um and they Don't were see you just you just triggered me because yeah and they're I, not I, even they're not junk pages by any means. They're good pages, but they're pages you could have had for two hundred dollars like four years ago. No, I know two two years ago at Heroes, I was introduced to a guy who owns an insane number of Excalibur pages. Yeah, and we sat next to each other at the auction, and he was like, "Oh, I, you know, I have so many, I'm happy to sell them." And I was like, and then he hit he hit me up, and he had incredible. It's an incredible collection, and I threw him some. It was a little annoying because he was one of those things where he was like, "Tell me which pages you're interested in." Yeah. And you know, it's like it's been a long time I since I it. like yeah. held an issue of Excalibur and so I had to like go through the issues and make markings and then you know, whatever. But the point is is ended up coming up like five or six that I would have loved to own and then um he hit me back and I think he wanted like roughly a thousand a page and Ugh. I was like, Ah man, like not right now. You know, I just got yeah, back to heroes and gotten, to, like, closer to what they're getting now. That's too yeah, much. That's too yeah much. but these were great pages, you know, like in retrospect. Like, like, and I'm oh. like, ah, oh, man, you know, and I just got back from Heroes. So I'm like, nah, you know, just again, I just yeah. blew a, sh- a shit ton at the con. And I didn't, and then and now I just, now I just deeply regret it because, I mean, those pages now are $5,000 pages. So it's just, it's just, yeah. <laughs> and that's also, wow. you know, and it, it, maybe we're in a bubble, but if we're in a bubble, it's been going for a couple of decades. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, the thing is, is I, a friend, uh, a friend of our, sh- a friend of the show, who has a incredibly eclectic, like almost impossible to believe, uh, collection of things. Uh, a friend, uh, his name is also name is Jason. Jason Tomio. Years ago, when I was first befriending him, uh, I rem- he mentioned to me, or he gave me his sort of elevator pitch about how now is the time to be buying all of the late Bronze Age and Modern Age stuff. Yeah. Because that, because the, you know, what we didn't account for was that we were going to age into a period of of our lives where we were, you know, enough of enough of us were, were nostalgic for that stuff that were that were getting wealthy or getting successful mm-hmm. professionally, and that would drive those prices up just like silver and golden age. And and while that was more my sweet spot of stuff I was interested in, I was like, nah, I don't know, man. Like again, like there's a huge difference, right? Like the, the stuff back then wasn't preserved. It wasn't collected. Right. So it's just harder to come by, but everybody was bagging and boarding their nineties comics. Everybody, you yeah. know, ev- every artist was holding their art to sell. And, 
And damned if he wasn't a hundred percent right. I mean, totally I mean right, in retrospect, yeah. you know, it's just it's just enough of us got old enough with enough money in our pockets that we're willing to spend uh, ungodly amounts to have these things because they mean something to us. So yeah, that's always the way it is. People are buying back their youth, you know. Mm. So there you have it, people. Go out and 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 buy Walking Dead pages and buy uh, yeah. Saga pages and buy <laughs> <laughs> buy my pages. Yeah, there you go. Buy strong. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> buy my, any of my stuff's fine. But- that's it's right. all for sale. I have no art dealer. It's just me. So that's, yeah, that was my, so if people do want to buy your stuff, what do they just reach out to you? Yeah, I usually have it with me at shows. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'm, you can get a hold of me on Twitter and actually do have a, uh, com that I barely take care of, but it has like ordering <laughs> information there for like some things, especially the wretch, uh, trade paperback. So, yeah, you can get a hold of me in a lot of different ways. Sweet. Usually at a show, usually at a show is best because I I could always sell my stuff through a dealer. But to me, part of the fun is interacting with people when they come to buy stuff from me. One hundred percent. And talking about like you know seeing that they get excited by a page and want to buy it. You know, and like if they get excited enough, I cut them a deal. You know, because I know it's going to somebody who actually loves it. You know, now you just got to go to cons that we're at. Yeah, I got to get. Listen, I I'm only going to shows that invite me nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, as, okay, so 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 New York didn't invite you, but you can stay at Jason's house for the weekend. I promise. Okay, <laughs> that's that's cool. <laughs> nice of David to invite him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My wife. That chat with my wife here after we were recording. Uh, <laughs> I'll make her get over it. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right hey phil it was awesome to have you here yeah it's too uh, any anytime you want me on i'll come back all right we'll take you up on that because uh those two hours just flew by it was great and uh for those of you playing at home remember in the previews catalog right now you can order family tree from jeff lemire and this man here, Phil Hester, pre-order it anyway. And uh, the first issue ships in November, is it? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. I should be able to tell you the exact date, but I can't. I think it's mid-November. Yeah. Phil and, Hester, uh, Jeff Lemire, Eric Gapster, and Ryan Cody. Yep. That's your and team. Lettered by Steve, and lettered by Steve Wands, who always gets left off all these things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there going to be any back matter in this thing? Because the preview copy just kind of ends. Next next issue cover here. Yeah, I don't, a- I don't think so. I think it's um I well because it's image and because we can do whatever we want. The page count even varies every issue. Oh, so, sweet. So sometimes it's twenty, sometimes it's twenty four, sometimes it's twenty two. Just whatever we need to tell the story. Oh, that's great. All right. Yeah, and so, it's uh, November thirteenth is issue number one. Yeah. And December eighteenth, the day before my birthday, is uh, issue number two. So, yeah, and it, it, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's like if you're a fan of Jeff's, it's it's like unfiltered Jeff, and it's great Phil too. I was going to say, yeah, unfiltered like, Phil as well. So I like you, to say that. If you solicit our sponsor, Discount Comic Book Service, you can get it at a really good discount, and uh, make sure to order past the first issue. Yes, because yes. first issues always do well. It's issues two and three that you know 
the, three is the toe. Yes. Three is the toe. Yes. So uh, great to have you here, Phil. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Let's not wait another forever until you come on again. Yeah, yeah really. yes, please. My um, man. If it if it takes forever again, I will know that I did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Depends on if you snore at Jason's house. <laughs> Hey man, he'll be on the he'll be in the uh, he'll be in the uh, the guest wing with you. I'm good. I want to hear it. Oh, that's a deal. Yes, hundred percent. All right, thanks, Phil. Thanks, guys. Good night. Have a great night. Good night. I love Phil. Yeah, me too. I'm glad he's around for us to love. Yeah, yeah, yeah man. It is. I mean, it is. It's it's night and day. I mean, you can if if you look at um, if you look at any photos of him now, uh, it's it's. It is quite different than, than when I first met him um, at, at Wizard World Chicago. Um, he, I, I mean, he was never, I wouldn't, I didn't think he was unhealthy. He was a big dude, but he, you know, I've, I've seen bigger guys who I would expect for, for bad things to, to, to happen to. I, I wouldn't have thought that for Phil and, and um, he, he had to make a serious um dietary and, and, and lifestyle change and and it, it's for the better it's for our better because i mean we we get stories from him and, and he's yeah, still yeah. around and uh and it, it's better for him but yeah I, I i when i when i saw him after the uh the weight loss it was it was a double take it, it almost unrecognizable at first glance i mean you see you still see him but at first it was i'm not gonna say shocking but it was just i i wasn't I had to make sure that I was I was I was seeing Phil Hester's name next to that photo. Yep, 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 yep. So uh, get your asses out there, people, and please pre-order Family Tree. You still got time? Do it. Family Tree number one from Image. Get it. Get it. Get it. So good. Yeah. So uh, we want to thank Phil. We also want to thank Discount Comic Book Service for making this whole brouhaha happen uh remember teenage mutant ninja turtles number 100 399 it's an exercise book don't start bitching um heart attack number one from image dollar 99 and dragonfly and dragonfly man number one from ahoy will cost you a dollar 99 the reason why i said this is the week of post-apocalyptic stories for me was because uh, the book I originally planned to talk about this episode, uh, and I will not do that because Dap is interested. Dap has not read it. Both Jason and I have read it, but I will. Um, this is a brief aside to my In Your Travels. I will implore you to read Molly Mendoza's Skip from No Brow. You will be hearing... The title of this book, no doubt, come eleven o'clock your time. Woo! Yes, it's it's not a book one puts down and believes that they've absorbed everything it has to offer. This is a book you can return to time and again and find something else. It's going to reveal its secrets over time. It's not a uh, it's not junk food. It's it's some very uh, resonant, some meaty meaty stuff and i loved it but anyway jason you feel the same way i liked it quite a bit okay 
So here's the real In Your Travels, yet another post-apocalyptic story. This coming from Red 5 Comics. This huh? this may That's have... The, yeah. yeah. This, uh, it just came out. I got it in my, my DCBS box. It is... Um, there's a long list of creators. Written and created by Don Handfield. Art by Leonard Rodriguez. Colors by Dijo Lima. And uh, there are actually um, consultants on this book. They they actually consulted with an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology from Washington College named William Schindler, a PhD student, medieval studies, and Cornell at Cornell University, a Pat Neve, and a medical consultant, Dr. John Lucas. Like, wow, I saw that and I was like, they have done their homework. The uh, book is called The Dark Age. And it is a post-apocalyptic tale. Uh, what would happen if all metal suddenly went away? It sounds absurd, doesn't it? Mm. What if all metal on the planet just evaporated like Captain, well, not Captain America, like uh, the Marvel characters did pre-Infinity uh, War, right? They just, well, put middle Infinity War, right? So the metal just kind of like evaporates, just turns to flakes and goes away. And the uh, survivors are left picking up the pieces. What do you do on a world without metal? Well, pretty much you turn to the Dark Ages. And we have a family... In the opening scene, dad's a, a anthropology or some other a similar science. He's a professor, and they're talking at the table, and they're trying to get their daughter engaged, and he's showing her artifacts, and the daughter wants nothing to do with it, and mom's pregnant, and then all the metal in the world goes away, and yet mom's going to deliver her baby. And then there's a massive flash, flash forward where um, we have the United States of Canada and there are, are rebels and there are uh, different factions vying for power. Um, it's There's no guns, thankfully, so this is kind of a neat little world. Uh, bow and arrow, uh, basic uh, hunting tools and um, the people that live in the inner cities have turned to cannibalism. There's a neat little illustration of a horse, and it's got bags on its feet. And I'm thinking, why does a horse need bags on its feet? Uh, duh, because there's no metal for horseshoes. Mm-hmm. And our, our anthropologist is trying to keep his family alive. It turns out that uh, the his young daughter, featured in the opening scene, somewhere along the line, had heart surgery. And the metal used to produce the drug which keeps her body from rejecting um, her heart is no longer around so she's basically living on borrowed time and trying to uh, you know make the world livable for her brother the child that was in the womb and the wo- in the woman in the, the opening scene it's very engaging stuff uh, there is an uh, a Native American group that uh, has made a treaty with the uh, United States of Canada, and there's 
various dealings between with them and I, I don't want to give too much of it away. I think you should read it. It's it's very thought-provoking stuff. Uh, I enjoyed it very, very, very much. Bought it solely on the strengths of the cover. And the cover, let me see. Um, da, da, da. I don't see who did the cover, but that's okay. The cover's very well done. It's it's the Washington Monument being enveloped in uh, greenery and somebody on horseback. It's great, great cover. So look it up. Uh, give it a try. The Dark Age from Red 5 Comics. It's pretty neat. Nice. I'd like to live in a world without guns. Yeah, me too. I said if everybody carried a sword, people would be uh, less willing to uh, get in people's faces, but that doesn't apply here either since there's no metal. Mm. So, unless you're using a practice sword, a wooden sword, but that's no fun. In your travels... Um, I have been perusing the second volume of the collected Topi. This is North America, and I just get absolutely um, lost in the lines. Uh, these are um, these are all stories. Uh, well, they basically. As the title says, um, stories all take place in North America, whether it's um, in Canada or out west. Um, these are all these were all first published um, in Italy in Italian magazines, um, for the most part. But the uh, the the first story, which is um, the uh, the Admiral at Rest, which is about a uh, an old admiral who's retired and uh, lives alone in his cabin deep in the woods. Um, every month he gets visited by uh, by someone just wandering through, looking to uh, the admiral is is really interested in um, in cigars. Nobody ever really seems to have any. Uh, they only offer him uh, snuff or chaw, but uh, someone shows up with a gun. And uh, demands the admiral feed him, and uh, the admiral's like, "Okay, sure, yeah, don't worry about it, I'm good." Um, gives the uh, gives this young buck something to drink, which young buck can't handle. Wakes up to um, find himself all tied up, uh, and then he and the admiral go on a trek, and uh, admiral's all happy and smiling, and and not a care in the world. This this, this kid's all pissing and moaning he's, he's a bank robber um and the admiral has basically walked him all the way to the uh, to the mounted police and that's kind of like basically a, a, a really nice well not, not it, it's it's a it's a quaint little story but it is absolutely beautifully illustrated it's it's um it's one of the black and white tales in this book it's an oversized hardcover as was the first one um and the uh the, the the stories all tend to have um, not necessarily that 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 o. Henry um, kind of twist, but um, they just really are pretty straightforward, and and um, it really is the visuals that uh, that move things along. I the 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 stuff he does with 
with a pen nib and and just ink is absolutely amazing um but yeah it's it's a series that uh, yeah I, I bought the first one and, and i didn't i think they said i think line forge says that there's going to be seven altogether so i don't think they're in this month's preview so I'm, i i got a reprieve but you know so so i guess a couple times a year and and um i tend not to really go crazy when it comes to series that like i don't have like the the ec archives for weird science or anything like that i I don't tend to go after the ongoing hardcover collections but this is uh this is one i have uh no regrets not a single letter so far and and i um i am really uh i just like i said i i could just stare at the the work on these pages for for hours so the collected topi in your travels. Sounds dopey. It's dopey. <laughs> um, special, special in your travels this week. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, was sent a digital copy of this book, and it uh, it's a book that is, uh, it warms my heart that it exists. Um, it's called The Whore Chronicles. Uh, but what makes it special is well, a couple things. But but uh, it's created by and written by a gentleman named Mr. Tony Esmond. Ooh. Yes, our friend Tony Esmond, who now works at No Brow, uh, wrote his first comic, and he sent it to me, and I, I I appreciate him doing that. But then once I opened it up and started reading it, it got all sorts of even better because. I'm going to uh, I'm going to tell you his co-creators, his art partners. So Tony Esmond wrote all the all the stories. Um, artwork by Rachel Ball, uh, by Rick Jackson, Tom Curry, Charles Raymond, Vincent Hunt, and wait for it, artwork by Sarah Harris. Oh, nice, nice. Our good friend and listener and. Uh, all about all around great person. Sarah Harris just did her first comic book illustration. Um, what is the War Chronicles? Well, it's a self-published book by Tony based on a uh, project, a charitable endeavor um, that has been going on in the UK called Beyond the Streets, uh, which is a UK-based charity that seeks the uh, possibility of life beyond sexual exploitation. You can find it at uh, Beyond the Streets all one word, dot org, dot UK, beyond the streets at org, dot UK. Uh, and basically part of that was uh, true story interviews of prostitutes. And Tony made a comic of it. So it is a, it's a, uh, let's see how many pages it is. It's 36 pages. And it is um, basically a, 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 short, a small anthology featuring um, interviews by Shelley, Peggy, uh, Diane, Lana, Sasha. Uh, and then there's two prose pieces by Tony as well called the story of Sydney small and Peggy was a rubbish prostitute. Um, and each is drawn by a different artist. Uh, Sarah draws, uh, the Peggy series or rather the Peggy story. Uh, and it's fantastic. I didn't know Sarah had this in her. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, but uh, I was just taken aback by this because it's all true, and it's uh, 
it's powerful stuff. Um, getting these real life looks into very, I mean, these are small. These are little clips of interviews that they did, uh, but little clips of, of interviews with, with different prostitutes and what they've gone through. And, uh, uh, it's yeah, it's fantastic. I just I just am titillated to, to think that our friends are, are putting out comics across the pond um, and getting it done and doing a great job with it. So um, I will find out from Tony when and how this book is available. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I haven't seen it in previews yet, so I don't know if it's going to like go through no brow or he's going to just have it online that that I will find out and I will pass it along in the uh, next episode after I hear back from him. But um, just be on the lookout for it. Um, so yeah, it's called the Whore Chronicles and, uh, get yourself a copy and then come to New York Comic Con and get Sarah and Tony to sign it for you. Sounds like a plan. Yep. Excellent. All right, everybody, you know, the drill. Thank you for being here. If you want much, much more of this, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, everywhere. We're there. We're a plague, a pestilence upon you. And we're never going away. So Pox. A pox on ye. Yes. <laughs> In the meantime, say goodnight. <clears throat> David. Night. Never going to get it. Never gonna get it, never gonna get it. You're never gonna get it. Nope. Mm-mm. Dave. I tried to distract you. Mm. It came close because I was I was about to do the little like the 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 do do that. We were gonna do harmony. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the Beyonce singing that? No, that's um It's TLC, isn't it? No, no. It's um is it in Vogue? Oh, maybe. In Vogue, yep. Yeah, there my you go. Lo- my, the song's name is My Lovin'. My Lovin'. I knew that. No, I didn't. We love you so much. Come back. We'll be here. Indeedly. Do you get